Hi, I'm Stephen Weber, and you're watching The Claw's Corner because Rich Sear was a sick bastard. Corner. Today's guest is an actor and producer. His movies include Orchard Beach, Crackdown, The Ungovernable Force, Vamp Bikers, High and Tight, and The Genesis. He is most well known as the War Chief of the Orphans in the 1979 iconic film The Warriors. He then transitioned into the music business, working with bands such as New Edition and the Fat Boys. He then went on to be a social worker helping AIDS patients, but is back acting in and producing movies. Please welcome Ramus, King of Queens. The man that made the phrase, we're going to rain on you, warriors. Famous. Of course, I'm talking about the one, the only, Apache Ramos. Welcome to the Claws Corner. Hey, thank you, Rich. Thank you, Rich. Before we start, I just want everybody to know that you are and forevermore an honorary orphan, brother. <laughs> I, am, I am a very proud orphan. Thank you. Let's get used much. to not being invited to places. <laughs> Well, as you said many times, the orphans were like the Rodney Dangerfield of gangs. That's right. That's right. That's yes, it. we are. Yes, we are. And the Warriors is is the uh, uh, the Rocky Horror of gang movies. You know. Yes. Every time I see a little kid on Halloween dressed up as a Fury, it just makes me so happy. You know. <laughs> you know to to think that uh, what's it? Forty three years ago, we made the the film came out in February uh, nineteen seventy nine, yes. and. You know, I was like 24, 25, and you know, I'm working on 69 coming up, and it's amazing that uh, people are still interested in the characters and and the actors and anything that's related to the to the uh, to the film, The Warriors. It's resonated with a lot of people, and uh, when I get to do uh, meet and greets, because I don't get to do a lot of them, but when I do get to do them. I always ask, uh, what was the first time you saw the Warriors, and, and why? Why did? How do you feel about it? What? Why do you dig it so much? And the stories I hear are really good. It's like uh, one guy told me, uh, "Well, you know, my father took me. He was supposed to take me to. He told my mother he was taking me to see uh, uh, the Lady in the Tramp, but he took me to see the Warriors. And uh, you know, my father's no longer with us, with me. But uh, we yeah. every, every time I see the movie." And uh, he liked your part in particular when Michael Beck threw the uh, the Molotov cocktail in that second look. He always used to laugh. So, oh yeah, you know, you get to hang out with people like that, and it means a lot to them. It, 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 it's like being on the bench on the Super Bowl team. You still get the ring, you know. <laughs> exactly. And you, as as people have told you many times, you have a very memorable but small role. I mean, I recognize you right away, and I know that. Like, and it's funny because. You are like uh, Roy Scheider in Jaws. He made that line, we're going to need a bigger boat. You made up that line, and Walter Hill said, I want to keep that line. And that's such an iconic line. People know when you say that, oh, I love that movie, The Warriors. You know exactly what I'm talking about, even before I finished the phrase. So yeah, it's, uh, it's become part of pop culture. I remember when uh, the Lakers uh, – when they won the NBA title with Shaq and Shaq, he goes, can you dig it? You know, when he, to the audience, I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's classic warriors, you know, it's just, uh, and it's amazing how many uh, doors it's opened up for me in terms of uh, meeting new people and, and, and people just treat me extra nice because I was in the warriors. It's, it really helped. 
when I was a social worker uh, in the South Bronx, uh, not for the meek or the timid, <laughs> uh, um, that helped me out a lot. You know, I would I would hear it. I would come out of the subway on 138th Street on the number four train and early in the morning, and I tell people I speak English, Spanish, and a language called Methodonian, you know, because there was a Methadon Center right there. Yeah. And I would come out and be, Mr. Ramos, Mr. Ramos, you know, help me out, you know, here. And I'm like, man, I haven't even gotten to the office yet. But they, oh, there we go. Warriors come out to play, uh, you know. I don't know how many times I've heard that. And I don't know how many times I said, we're going to rain on you. I've said that so many, many times. And yeah. I've said it in different little, these independent movies that I'm working with, because I love working with these uh, young directors. They're the only ones calling me. So I come and I get to work, you know, so it's fun. Oh, yeah, exactly. And hey, you get to work. That's the best part. Before we even get into that, I want to talk about how we first met. I just met you two weeks ago at the Chiller Convention. But originally, I met you at the 35th anniversary of the Warriors in Coney Island at the Wonder Wheel. You had most of the cast there. It was such a fun time. Got to hang out with everybody. Got to watch the movie with the Warriors. And you were the first person I met. I remember I parked my car. I walked. You weren't even in the tents or anything yet. It was still early. But you came out and... Hey, can I get a picture with you? Oh, come on, let's take a picture. We're like family here. <laughs> you were came out of nowhere, extremely friendly. And I first thing I said was, This is gonna be a great day. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was the sun was shining. I think it was the yeah, it was the 35th anniversary. Yeah, like you said, we had most of the cast, and it was a so many people came out, you know, I've heard all kinds of different numbers, but I know the place was packed, but you're talking about when it was early in the morning, we hadn't really set up yet. Yes. I just saw the people coming and uh, there's certain times I go to Coney Island, people will recognize. So I was like, yo, what's up? The orphans, you know, I always stick up for the orphans, represent, represent the orphans. And uh, the, I feed off the people, you know what I'm saying? I just feed off it. And my daughter was with me and I had my uh, Tony Soprano shirt on. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> well, that's what my girlfriend just said. I look like Tony Soprano. But uh, you do. I have was a picture. great day. That was I a know. great was day. Like, I loved it because you know what's great? Two of my favorite movies of all time are The Warriors and Jesus Christ Superstar. And I'm so happy because I'm interviewing you. I interviewed Ted Neely, who played Jesus, but also I got a chance to watch the movie with the Warrior cast and also the Jesus Christ Superstar cast. So those two moments I will never ever forget. And just the Warriors, I remember 1979, I was 11 years old. I remember seeing it, and I've watched it probably over 100 times now. And I know I could probably act in that movie. I could do a one-man show for all the parts. <laughs> I, it's well, such when I go, I used to go, uh, I've been a few times, I haven't gone recently, uh, due to the pandemic and stuff too, which messed up a lot of things. But um, uh, Coney Island, when they have the Coney Island Film Festival at midnight, they would play the Warriors. And... Uh, People know every single line. I mean, that's why I equate it to the Rocky Horror thing because people come dressed up. And once in a while, you get an orphan or two, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we get an orphan. You know, I can always tell it's the, the green shirt, really easy to make. And uh, Bobby Mannix, who made the costumes, uh, uh, incredible woman. I mean, it's the warrior uh, vest is like... Uh, it's really iconic now. And I, you know, always kid around with us. What happened with the orphans? You know, we had this, this shitty little green T-shirt with orphans in the back. And uh, she said, 
truth is, Apache, we ran out of money. We just ran out of money. I was like, Paramount Pictures ran out of money? But uh, it just works with my shtick. It just works with being an orphan, you know, the whole bit, you know. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that because it's funny. Walter Hill, the director, we're going to get into all this, but he did not want you to see the Warriors at first. So I want to hear your initial reaction as you saw them walking down the street. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I always tell people I was born in Brooklyn, raised in the Bronx, and that's why my blood type is B positive. But uh, yeah, I grew up in the Bronx, you know, so uh, I, you know, I knew gangs growing up and, uh, uh, you know, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s in the Bronx. And, uh, you know, there's some rough times in the Bronx, you know, uh, rough times for New York City, you know, the president of the United States go and say, go to hell, you know, so uh, it, it was rough times. So I, I seen the uh, Thing, a lot of things. I say in a lot of things and um, a lot of bad things, but within that comes art. And that's why you had, you know, breakdancing and hip hop came from that. And the, the ashes, you know, comes a Phoenix. But um, what was the question again? I get thrown No, off. the question was Walter Hill, the director. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, uh, Paul Greco, rest in peace. He was orphan number one. I was orphan number two. Although I've seen in the video games, he had one name and they called me Jesse. I have a t-shirt that says they called me Jesse, but really with the script, it was orphan number one and orphan number two. And, you know, like you said, uh, we didn't see them. And, uh, you know, in your mind, when you read a book, it's different than seeing a film, you know, you, with what you picture. So I'm picturing a whole different kind of situation there with what the warriors look like. And, um, and Paul, you know, Paul was a street kid, too. You know, he knew what was going down. And we, we immediately hit it off because we were just happy to be in a film, a Paramount Pictures, you know, an overfed, long hand leaping unknown, trying to be the star of a Hollywood movie, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, so finally, you know, Walter liked to water the sets. You know, and at night, it looked really, really good when you watered down the sets. And, you know, I'm ready. I can't really see because I don't have my glasses on. And... Uh, we hit, you know, we see that they're coming. I'm, we're getting a little excited. When I saw them, you know, not for nothing, but I see, you know, the blonde hair. I see Fox and, you know, and uh, the it just didn't look real to me. So I was kind of, I was like, man, come on, get out of here. You know, that, you know, I, you know, but, you know, they're paying me to do this. So I'm going to do it, you know, the best I can. So I did it, but I had no, I don't know how it worked, you know, just like, uh, how anybody could imagine somebody with a baseball outfit with a kiss face drawn on your face could be so sinister in Central Park. I mean, what gay will do that? But anyways, it just it just worked. And uh, thank God it did. And yeah. Michael Beck uh, turned out to be really one of the most nicest human beings on the planet. You know, just a wonderful guy. In fact, the whole cast is pretty pretty tight when we get together. You know, we I just wish the promoters would get some more, you know, use more of the B squad, which I think is gonna happen now. I call us the B squad, the junior varsity, you know, the ones that made the Warriors look great. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't get we don't, we don't get enough gigs. Uh but I think now that uh there's so many avid uh collectors of autographs they want to get uh, as many autographs as you can. <laughs> I mean, when I was at Chilla, uh, I finally got invited. Well, actually, I got invited two years before the pandemic, but I got really, really sick then, and so I couldn't attend. But uh, 
When I was at Chilla, somebody walked in with 40 uh, uh, ma- uh, vests, uh, warrior's vests and rogue's vests, 40 of them for me to sign, you know. So I was like, yeah, okay, you know, $40 a shot, that was pretty good, you know. Yeah. And uh, the uh, promoter, the agent that I'm working with now, he's like, yeah, Patsy, you, you know, I have a lot of people want you guys to come out to the West Coast because, you know, the Warriors have done a million of these things, you know, which they, you know, God bless them. But so, some of us, like uh, the Lizzie's and uh, yeah. the Orphans and some of the Riffs, uh, whoever's still alive, you know, people want those autographs as well. And uh, so I'm glad uh, I'm going to get a few more gigs coming up. In fact, I got one uh, shameless promotion. I think it's June 2nd, I think it is, or something that uh, I'll tell you later. But I know it's coming up. <laughs> I'm doing it. Yeah, no, you know what? By the end of this show, I'm going to let you promote all you want. So yeah, you can- I can't. I, I don't even remember anyways. But, yeah, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's been a fun thing. It actually was Mercy, Debbie V, that got me involved with this uh, about 12 years ago. Said, Apache, uh, you know, come on down, you know, cast members. and Because uh, I had met her. When I was in the record business, she had come, we had bumped heads, you know, you see people, you know how New York is. Oh, yeah. Oh, I lost you. Hold on. No, Hold on. There you go. No. Oh, yeah. Hi. Jazz. Oh, boy. I Jazz, lost oh, her. Oh, please, please stand by. I can still hear you. I can, I can hear you. you, too. I can hear you, too. But here, my, my jazz will come here in a minute and fix it. All right. Yeah. I touched this by mistake. She goes, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I can... I can see him. There we go. Oh, All right, there we are. Hey, how's it going? Don't touch anything. Uh, don't touch anything. Okay. <laughs> Step away from the computer. Step away. That's right. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, as you were saying that, yeah, you, I love the fact that there's a research. I think the resurgence started, correct me if I'm wrong, but with the video games came out. In the oh, 90s. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I was working for New York then. I was working for my city, New York, as in social services, and I remember uh, being in Lizzie territory, uh, uh, 14th Street, um, Union Square, and coming up the stairs, and all of a sudden, everything was warrior, the video game, you know, you saw the little gangs, I was like, whoa, (laughs) you know, and that just developed, right now, somebody on this planet is kicking my ass, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know I, that's a good thing i guess but yeah right you know right now because of the video game the video game gave us a whole nother audience and the the like when it, the fathers who took their sons there those kids are now taking their sons to go see and daughters and daughters let me say also to to see the warriors it's uh you know um like I said, when we did it, I, I didn't think it was just a gig. I learned more about the Warriors from uh, the fans when I, you know, they write me or I talk to them, you know, with my Facebook thing. And like, I didn't know that my tattoo, the Puerto Rican flag is the only flag in the movie. I didn't know that. Somebody told me that, you know. So I, I get plenty of opportunities uh, when I do things. Uh, Apache, I know a lot of tattoo artists. Uh, you know, I'll fix up your flag, you know, I'll make it, I said, no, it's fading like I'm fading. I let it go. That was, that was, that was 1973 San Francisco, you know, yeah. <laughs> when I was doing my summer stock, uh, my apprenticeship. Oh yeah. We're going to get into all of that. I want to talk about the Warriors a little bit more because how did you hear about the audition? 
I heard about it because uh, I had an agent at the time and I wasn't getting anything. And um, um, I got an agent through, um, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time when I was going, I was going to Hampshire. I graduated from Hampshire College in 1976. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, we were close. Her name was Andrea, rest in peace. And her brother was, a, was an actor, played Danny Zuko on Broadway. And um, he had a girlfriend who was a, also a Broadway actor, actress. And they liked me and we, 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 we got along and they got me an agent and I wasn't getting anything. And they, then I, I got sent for this warrior thing. Uh, I had an agent, I forgot who he was. And I went for it and I had this big attitude and I was really, you know, I wasn't getting anything. I, you know, when I was in college, I had my own group. It was called Moto Theater. It was a mostly improvisational group. You know, this is after I, I served my apprenticeship in, in Napa Valley, uh, California, which was beautiful. I thought I was going to Hollywood, but the bus was going north and not south. And then and we kept going, we kept going, we kept going. I already spent all my money getting high in New York to be, uh, before that. So I didn't have no money. I had high heels and all that. I was very New York spaced out. And uh, we're going up, we're going up, we're going up. I'm seeing cows and shit. They left me <laughs> off on this dirt road. And these bunch of hippies came and that was that was the actors in the theater group. And they took me to a shed, looked like a shack up. And it was uh, behind uh, the Bondavi wineries. And it was a shack and it had, um, it had the grapes and they held up by these prune props. And uh, that's how we used to steal the prune props and build our sets like for Streetcar Named Desire because it was the nap, a nap, a nap, a nap, a nap, a nap, a nap. Valley Theater Company. So, anyways, I'm not got a nice shop. jingle to it. I like it. Yeah, it was. It was. It was we, we had. We had a good times. And uh, and at first, I saw a deer and it scared the shit out of me. I thought it was a big dog. But, uh, <laughs> when I guess, I, I guess I, living I, in the city, you're not used to seeing yeah, deer. I, so. Yeah, it was a big dog. And um, also, I was living with vegetarians and. Uh, it, it was it was just a totally different these white freaks it was just total different weird experience and i loved it well while and, we're uh, talking about that i want to get into the rattlesnake story since we're talking about the deer oh, the rattlesnake story yeah, it was a great rattlesnake story that you have yeah yeah well first i'll tell you what i got okay i thought i was gonna be a big actor it was in hollywood and when i got to the theater uh the next day because I, I arrived at night and when i got to the theater the next day they gave me a broom they gave me a broom. I was so upset, but I had spent all my money already. So I didn't, I didn't even know how to get out of there. So I learned how to sweep and respect the stage. Yeah. The rattlesnake story, the rattlesnake story. Oh my God. So it's funny because I had a premonition. They had told me that there were rattlesnakes in the area, but people who had lived there told me that they had never seen it. And I knew deep in my heart that I was going to see a rattlesnake. I just knew it was going to happen. I even dreamt it. And I had a girlfriend at the time who came from Boston because my school was in Massachusetts. Uh, this was, let me see, I entered in 72. So this was the summer of 73. My uh, professor, Gladden Schrock, knew I had never seen the place. So he, uh, he said I needed to, uh, to learn about the theater. So he got me the apprenticeship. So anyways, I'm out there. She came out from Boston to hang out with me. It was, her name was Sunshine, of course. It was 1973. And, uh, we, you know, tripping out on the um, on the roof of the uh, 
of the shack and um, playing music. I think we only had two albums. We had Al Green and Van Morrison. Those were the two only, only two albums we had. That's all we needed. But she saw the snake. <laughs> so the snake, I said, leave it alone. <laughs> leave it alone. You know, we don't fuck with the snake. The snake won't mess with us, you know. And she was like, no, you have to kill it. I was like, kill it? I don't want to, how am I going to kill this thing, you know? I know how to box a little, but I don't fucking want to kill this thing. You, know? <laughs> you crazy? So um, she said, no, you got to kill it. So because it's under the, the, the where, you, where you enter. So, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. And there was a fireplace. There was a place where you could uh, make a little fire. It was out, like a chimney thing outside the house. So it wasn't really built, so there were bricks. So I decided to brick it to death. And it was just horrible. I just kept throwing the fucking bricks. The thing kept turning up. And I just, I didn't really want to kill the thing. And, you know, it turns out I learned on a Chinese menu, you know, I like Chinese food, that I was born near the snake. I think that, that was 1953 was near the snake. But, um, yeah, so eventually he died. And uh, I felt terrible about it. And, but I did cut his tail off. Needless to say, Sunshine, Sunshine and I didn't make it too good after that because, that was it. <laughs> you know, I, I, that was it. But, uh, yeah, she was beautiful, Sunshine. Yeah. yeah back in the best. City boy in the country. Yeah. That, that's a movie right there. How are you going to kill this day? I'm going to wrestle the motherfucker. I don't know what to no. do. <laughs> <laughs> you might have had a better chance of boxing it. I'm not sure. Yeah, right? I just wanted to leave it alone. Well, getting back to the Warriors, this I, I love this story because as you're waiting to do your audition, you had a very interesting person sitting next to you and you had no idea who it was. Well, okay. So, all right. So that goes back to my audition to the Warriors. So I didn't, I, you know, at this point, I didn't give a shit anymore. I was working in Bloomingdale's and it was an okay job. It was a union job. I'm, I'm always been a union guy. Um, and um, I used to hang out this, uh, it used to be famous. They moved it recently, but it was on uh, 60th in Lexington, across the street from Bloomingdale's, the subway in. So I had a, you know, uh, it was okay. I had a good job, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I, I went. I wasn't getting any parts, so I had an attitude. I got the audition, so I decided to go. I had a black T-shirt, silver letters that said Bronx, and uh, I was living in the Bronx. No, actually, I was living in Queens with another girl. Yeah. And I had shorts on, and I had my Blue Pumas, Clyde, Frazier sneakers, and um, they were blue suede, and all my socks were blue because of it, because when they got wet, your <laughs> socks get blue. But uh, And I had a, uh, my 8 by 10 a little resume, and a bottle of rum. So a little bottle of Bacardi. Mm -hmm. So I go to the audition, and, you know, and there was just a lot of people there, you know, because of the different gangs and stuff like that, whatever. So I wasn't really paying it no mind. Take my little sip. And then this white guy sat down next to me and he was talking, blah, blah, blah. And um, I took a sip. I said, you want a sip? He said, no, that's okay. We keep talking, blah, blah, blah. And he disappears. And then finally I get called in. When I called in, it was Walter Hill, was that white guy that was sitting next to me. So apparently he was going around and uh, checking people out. And um, I didn't even have to say a word. He, he knew who I was. And he said, Apache, 
I got this part and uh, uh, I wish I'd have met you sooner, which always had me in my mind thinking, what if, you know, what if, you know, what if, who knows? It would have been totally, it would have went in a little different direction, I think. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, I would have said, take a cab, take a cab. <laughs> Call a gypsy cab. We can get the Coney. Fuck all this. But uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he said, you wanted this part? Uh, and I said, sure, I'll take it. And um, it changed my life. I didn't know it at the time, even when I finished it. I mean, I wasn't invited to the any after parties or nothing like that. I never heard about it again. It was just a gig. It was only as uh, time started going on that this, the Warriors were like, this is a buzz. It was this weird. It was like a little buzz. And then you know, it's like, yeah, I'm in that. You're in that. You know, here, here's a free drink. Boom. <laughs> You're in the Warriors? Yeah, boom. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it started uh, making opening doors. However, my life took a left turn at that point, and I wound up in the record business. Uh, my good, one of my good uh, friends and roommates, and we're still boys, uh, Arthur Baker, yep. uh, was one of my roommates in college, and uh, Imagine, Arthur Bagel, one of the parties that we had. He was always DJing. But um, he uh, he had come to New York. He's from Boston. And uh, we got in touch again. And he said, uh, Patsy, you want to be in the record business? And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> why not? I know nothing of music, but why not? Okay. Um, you know, you're, you're young in those days. You try anything. Yeah. And next thing I know, I'm in Long Island City picking and packing records in a warehouse. I mean, picking, packing, and sending them out, you know, in boxes, picking and packing records. Not exactly my idea of the record business at the time, but it um, it helped me learn about the record, different record labels. And and uh, Arthur and I were in charge of the 45 department. Whoever listens to this may not know what a 45 was, but it was a little, you know, where you had two songs, one in the front and one A side and B side. And you had a little spindle and you used to play your 45s. And those were the records that you would also see in the jukebox. <laughs> so from that, I remember I, them well. From that, I learned the labels and the, then the distributors. And then uh, Arthur went off uh, doing his thing. And then I became a national, no, Arthur became a national record salesman. Then I became a national record salesman where I was uh, like what MCA would give me the late, you know, we were uh, a record distributor. Yeah. So we would get from the major labels and uh, we'd call up and, you know, sell records to the record stores, you know, <laughs> all over. I, at one point I was so good that now I can't stand the phone. You, you know, it's hard to get me on the phone. Right? I don't like talking. Texting was made for me. Yeah. But I was so good at the time I could, I had a, uh, account where I was selling eight tracks. Now, if you don't know what 45 is, eight tracks is really going to throw you. But I was selling eight tracks to a funeral home in, in Cuthbert, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, my game was that good. But it, it was a fun job because, um, you know, you had all the latest records, you know, and, and uh, that was a fun time in the 80s. And, you know, and, and then uh, you had the the little independent record labels uh, breaking acts, you know, um, 
uh, creating music, the house music, hip hop, break dancing, that all came from the little independent record labels, you know, put out those uh, 12 inches and stuff. So it was part, it was fun being part of that scene. And then I, I would- um, well, Was this Streetwise Records? Oh no, then Streetwise Records oh. came uh, after, okay. uh, after created Streetwise Records uh, with another roommate of mine, uh, Paul McCraven, uh, from my Hampshire college days. And um, he he invited me uh, again. He looked out for me and invited me in. And from there, I would call the uh, rec all the record distributors to make sure Streetwise Records was there. And then from there, we were breaking acts. And that's what the independent uh, record labels did. We A guy named Maurice Starr brought in a, uh, a demo. Demos used to be the little cassettes, <laughs> you know, and uh, of a group from... Um, uh, uh, Roxbury from the projects and uh, you know between you and I and whoever's listening to this it was a complete ripoff of uh, the Jackson 5 and uh, but the Jackson 5 was old by that time so population for little uh, girls of color didn't really have somebody for them the Spanish kids we had menudo <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, uh, I remember because back then I didn't have to buy, ever buy tickets for any group. I'd go any group. I was Apache Ramos and go anywhere backstage. But I had to buy tickets for Menudo and Rockefeller, I mean, in Radio City for my goddaughter Monique and her little friends. I'll never forget that. But, anyways. Uh, well, I was going to say, let me, before, let me stop you for a second because you had it better. The white kids had new kids in the block. <laughs> Uh, well, that was way before New Kids on the Block. No, I know, yeah. Yeah, it was way, way before New Kids on the Block. Uh, I, re I remember Menudo very well. And I yeah, I know New Kids on the Block is really, uh, I think the same guy, Marie Starr, came with the same formula, but uh, the group was called New Edition and Candy Girl. It broke out, and when we put Candy Girl out, uh, I w it was like, it just blew up. It just blew up. Candy Girl just blew up. Then Mr. Telephone Man came out, and it just blew up. It was like um, Streetwise Records. I'll never forget, I had my Streetwise Records jacket and I could go anywhere. And we were very hot independent record label. Besides New Edition, we had um, Lolita Holloway and, and uh, who else was with us? There was a group from uh, England called Freeze and we had a, it was uh, a song called A-E-I-O-U, and that shit just blew up. I remember the Puerto Rican Day Parade, everybody singing, you know, you're teaching your kids the vows. In fact, I got my uh, my grandson, I got him into the A-E-I-O-U. <laughs> but yeah, we had that, we had Lolita Hathaway, and then uh, I brought in a group called, a guy called Colonel Abrams, which sounds like a PR nightmare, sounds like a guy from the Israeli army or something, but he was really one of the... Uh, beginners of uh, house music. Colonel Abrams' music is the answer. And actually, I fell in love with him because he had a, a ballad called Leave the Message Behind the Door that to me was a womb beater, a baby maker, and a cradle shaker. It was, it, was, it was really, really hot. And at that time, I was living, I had a roommate named Russell, and I was living on 183rd Street in the Grand Concourse. And uh, I was on the first floor, and Colonel Abrams was like about 6'2", and he used to knock on my window and give me demo tapes, let me hear his music. In fact, at, after New Edition, we broke out with New Edition. Uh, yeah, we also had uh, Eartha Kitt. I have a great Eartha Kitt story. But um, um, 
Well, let, let me tell my viewers right now, For as we talked about, some of you might not know what a 45 or an 8-track is, but New Edition <laughs> had a very young Bobby Brown. Oh, well, Bobby, oh, I have my... I, Bobby was my favorite, you know, Bobby's, I have, I have my Bobby Brown stories, but um, I wish him all the best always. I think he was just on TV the other day. They, um, so, yeah. yeah, he was on, um, I missed him a few times after, the, I last saw Bobby, because when Bob, okay, but I have to go back and I have to go back. So new edition just, just blew up. And then um, we had the hottest record label independent record label there was us it was tommy boy records with planet rock and it was sugar hill with the sugar hill gang mm -hmm. and it was us with new edition and and uh you had emergency records and it was and we were all even though we were competing with each other we go to the radio stations on tuesdays and wednesdays you go to bls you go to ktu you go to kiss you know you hustling your records and then you had to because i don't know how they do it now but back then you had to coordinate radio with retail, with club play. You know, you had to make sure that you had, the record was in the record store and it was hard to get in the record store if it wasn't being played on the radio. Yeah. And if it wasn't played on the radio, you couldn't get the record store to buy it. And then th that's why we had to depend on club play. So you had to make sure all the different record pools had the record and you had to service the record pools. And then you had to go out at night to make sure they were playing that record, you know? You were really hoping that Larry Levan would play that record at the garage and that it would be a hit because then the word of mouth and then the, the record stores, uh, the 12 inch buyers, the 12 inches, you know, the dance music would, would buy the record because they heard Larry play it. And then since it would, they'd be at the record store so the DJs could buy it, then uh, the radio stations might play it. So it was a constant battle. You know, it was a, you, you, you were always working. It was hot. It was great. You know, it was, you know, it was the kind of job that, uh, that you were proud to be of, you know, you felt like, uh, um, being part of something big. It was, it was very hip. And, and then the, then all of a sudden, the, uh, one day I, we had the hottest little record label. And then all of a sudden I come to work and, and the record label is bought by, uh, somebody I don't really want to talk about too much, but you know, uh, when they say number one with a bullet, they're not playing in the record business. I'll just put it that way. So, uh, um, by that time, the majors had swooped up on new edition. Okay. And, uh, MCA records had new edition and, um, the people who were the new management team for new edition, like the work I did. And I had a little bit of a reputation and uh, they hired me to, it was AMI, AMI management. And at that time, they also, we brought in Colonel Abrams. So it was, uh, we had AMI Productions. We had a group from uh, 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 Flint, Michigan, where Carl Banks came from, Giants, but uh, Flint, Michigan, and they were called Ready for the World. And uh, Ready for the World, um, is on my wall ready for the world we're in gold and platinum and uh they're most known for a record it was the only pop number one pop record remember there was different there was dance music there was r&b and then there was pop music so the the ultimate is pop and that was the only number one pop record i ever worked was uh oh sheila by ready for the world oh oh sheila so uh 
So they were so we had so my my uh, the groups I was responsible with the AMI management team was uh, New Edition, and then Bobby Brown. When Bobby went solo, I went with Bobby, and oh, good. And then uh, and then we had Ready for the World, and then of course Colonel Abrams, who who had a monster hit. Uh, we had number one UK platinum was in my bedroom wall uh, from the UK. We called Trap. I'm trapped. I'm so confused. So it was pretty good. And I had, you know, I had a reputation because uh, every summer I would go to the Jack the Rapper convention in the ATL Atlanta. And uh, that's where all the black radio programmers uh, and uh, retail and radio stations uh, across the country would, would meet. And then you would bring your groups and break them out. And uh, one year I got an award from uh, Isaac Hayes of all people. Uh, for my total involvement with uh, black radio, black music, uh, Jack the Rabbit was called, it was the uh, um, uh, Isley Brother Award. Um, and uh, he was born on Christmas Day and I was born on Christmas Eve, which is really funny, but yeah. So I had a reputation for all that. And then, um, and then that was gone, <laughs> you know, then- well, uh, I wanna stop right there for a second because yeah. I want to go back to Streetwise, Streetwise Records because you said it was going well. Then all of a sudden, you walked into work one day and they said, "All right, it's it's through." Somebody bought out. Did, who is the one that was it Arthur Baker that sold it to these people, or did he have a say in this? Well, yeah, um, yeah, you know, Arthur could tell his own story about that, but uh, I just know that uh, Arthur and I always, you know, he always looked out for me. It's just, uh, oh, good. It's just the record business, you know, and. Uh, uh, Gangsters took it, you know, that's how it happens, you know, okay. so uh, that's enough talk there. I'm going to leave it like that. But uh, yeah. so but I was lucky that because I I helped on the transition. Uh, but then uh, the management team of uh, New Edition hired me because I had done such a good job with New Edition when when um, we were breaking them out in Streetwise Records. But yeah, we had we also had uh, I got to spend uh my birthday, Christmas Eve with Eartha Kitt. I don't have one picture. I was in the office. We were on 43rd Street between 6th and uh, Avenue of the Americas there. And uh, it was a beautiful office. And um, it, was, it was Christmas Eve. It was my birthday. And uh, I was in the office late because I was still making phone calls and taking calls. And uh, I had champagne on my desk because people had sent me stuff. And... Uh, yeah, it was really good. And a couple of people were in the office. We had a great sound room. So we blasted music. Who walks in? It's a kid. Oh, my God. So I was like, damn, Catwoman, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. St. Louis Blues here. And, um, I, I, you know, I was starstruck. I mean, this is this is an iconic person here. And I kept calling her Miss Kid, Miss Kid, Miss Kid. And, um, um she she said, if you call me Miss Kit one more time, I'm gonna go upside your head. My name is Eartha and I'm from South Carolina. And from that moment on, we hit it off, you know? <laughs> She's, and I told her it was my birthday and I had uh, Negro champagne there. Uh, I think that's what it was called. And she drank champagne with me and we talked about her record because we were distributing her record. It was called, Where Is My Night? Mm -hmm. And, um, we hit it off so well, and uh, she took me on tour with her a couple of gigs in D.C. in the Baltimore area. And uh, I don't have one picture with that, but that was a golden moment that I spent with uh, 
with Eartha Kid uh, d- distributing her records, and that was uh, Streetwise Records. Okay. And I and I still I I wish I still had my Streetwise jacket, but I wore it to death. But I still have a, a new edition tour jacket. I had two of them. I had one in white, but it was stolen. Uh, my apartment was robbed one time. But um, yeah, and I found one in my closet. I, I think I'll leave it for my grandson or my granddaughter. It, it might be really cool in the future. <laughs> so when you worked for New Edition, then you went to work for Bobby. How long did that last? That lasted for about two years because I'm trying to think of the time period. When Bobby left, uh, he came out with an album called King of Stage. And Bobby and I were close. Bobby, I think Bobby and Ralphie, uh, I was closer to them. But And then Bobby, when Bobby went solo, and uh, he was just a wonderful guy. He got a lot of bad press. and But uh, I've I, I, I been with him when he was a little kid. He was a little kid. He, I have a, a, a picture that I recently, that my daughter recently found when we did a March of Dimes event. And uh, you can see the rest of the guys dressed very conservatively and Bobby dressed out this uh, red and black diamonds and hearts uh, <laughs> outfit. You knew right then and there he was different. And, uh, but he had a really big heart. He had a big family that depended on him. His brother Tommy and I had the same birthday. So we got to hang out. Um, a lot because he always looked out for his brother and I got to tour with Tommy with Bobby a little bit and I you know I've seen I've been with him in limousines where he'll pull a car over give a homeless person a hundred dollars and that's no joke I've seen him do it you know the guys they were they were young kids and um, they work very hard and I'm, I'm very happy for their success and they deserve it because they really got ripped off the record business is it's cutthroat is you know um now we're going to go into, I'll, I'll move it up and I'll kick it up a notch. And, um, well, before we do that, I just want to yeah. talk, cause you met so many interesting people and I've done my research and you have so many great stories. I want to talk about your experience with, uh, Donnie Osmond. My Donnie Osmond, that's right. I forgot about Donnie. All right. So AMI Productions, they also handled, uh, John Waite, uh, from the babies, uh, mm-hmm. I ain't missing you at all since yes. you've been gone. All right, so we uh, and my my partner T T did what I did, uh, but he dealt with the uh, white groups. But T, uh, who who could do the English accent so perfect. Oh my God, he was so funny. He would always do John Wade. So we had John Wade, and we had a group called Sabotage. They were very yes. heavy metal. You know Sabotage, right? Do. And uh, so Donnie came to the office, and he he was interested in. Uh, by a my management representing him, which was uh, 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 Steve Machat, Bill Dern, rest in peace, and Rick Smith, wherever you are. Uh, shout out to uh, Stephen Machat, who I'm still very close with, who just recently got buried, and he has a book out. I forget uh, somewhere here called Gangsters and something in the record business. He knows the real story. In fact, with him, I met. Uh, uh, Lenny Cohen. I have a great Lenny Cohen story. Uh, um, one time I was in the office, we were at 1501 Broadway, and uh, that was the main office uh, where his father, Stephen Michaud's father, used to represent uh, Lenny Cohen. And one day I'm sitting there, and who's there? Lenny Cohen. And Lenny Cohen and I are hanging out. And, you know, I'm like hanging out with Lenny Cohen. We're talking, blah, blah, blah. 
mad cool guy. And I was saying, you know, we should get you and Ben Bada together. And he thought that was a great idea. African Ben Bada at the time was very hot with Planet Rock. And um, so we, we got to be friends and he gave me tickets to see him at Carnegie Hall and I got to hang out with him. But um, you met a lot of interesting people in the music world and in Africa. Yeah, my, my daughter calls me the, the uh, Puerto Rican Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, because in college, when I was acting, uh, I, I used to go to Smith. Hampshire College is in the, uh, if you go to Hampshire College back then, I don't know what's happening now. You, you could, it was in the Amherst area. So you go to Amherst. Uh, Smith, UMass, and Mount Holyoke. There was five colleges. So I tended to go take classes at Smith and Mount Holyoke because they were all girls. So I would go there a lot. That was the kind of guy I was. <laughs> so I remember um, I auditioned for a play at Smith College written by Paul Carter Harrison called The Death of Boogie Woogie. And uh, I got the part of a character called Chocolate Chip, and it was Detroit 1940s. I still remember one of my lines, a, a dollar and a dime buy your six pretty white horses. I still remember that line. But um, also in the play was Martin Luther King's daughter. Yes. Yolanda King. And uh, rest in peace because she passed away too. Damn. That's the shit about getting older. You know, you, know, you, you lose more people than you get to know. But um, yeah, so Yoki, we used to call her Yoki, uh, was in the same play as I was in um, – we got to be close and we got to be friends and, and, uh, um, except for when I was in public with her, I always felt very protective because she looked just like her father, you know, but, uh, other than that, she was a cool person. And then through them, through her, I met Coretta Scott King and I met Dexter. I didn't meet Martin Luther King Jr. And then when we had the, uh, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, first annual celebration, I helped put the bands together. Uh, with Dexter, and um, I wish I still had the sweatshirt that they gave me. I mean, I know that they, I, I should have just wrapped it up and never put, you know, never wore it, you know, because it's, it's turned into dust. My daughter wound up with it. But uh, yeah, that's another thing. That's another reason why she calls me the Puerto Rican Forest Gump. But um, well, we are, I want to talk about the, you, like I said, you met everybody's. I love that analogy, the Puerto Rican Forest Gump. But Chris, <laughs> are you met? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter. Also, you have a connection with Treat Williams. What? what how's that? Connection? Well, that was that was the actor that uh, Danny Zuko. That was the actor that played Danny Zuko. Damn, you you really do your research. Yeah, Treat Treat Williams was very good to me, and it was his his sister that her and I were very. That was my girlfriend for okay. the longest time. When we, I met her at Hampshire College, and uh, in fact, my eight by 10, I'm wearing treats, one of the treats shirts. <laughs> but he, I met him when he was playing Danny Zuko on Broadway and he was always really, really good to me. He just he was just a good guy. He was just a good guy. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, it was his girlfriend, uh, her name was Janie Sell, who was a Broadway actress at the time, who got me the agent, who got me the part in the Warriors. And that's the connection there. Ah. Yeah, yeah. It all goes back to that. I love it. It all goes back to that. Yeah, and and then I I found out years later that Andrea is no longer with us, which makes me sad, because that's the magic of Facebook. Uh, Facebook uh, happened because when my daughter got married, um, she's like, Dad, uh, we can't be as tight as we used to, but these people keep trying to 
reach you through me because when I left the record, okay, let's not go there yet. Let's get uh, still in the record business. MC, okay, so we very successful um, with the management company, but then that folded. Then that, that went its way too because that's the way the record is. You know, you're only as good as your last hit. So unfortunately, so then I was out of work again and um, uh, uh, I got a call for, because I had a good reputation. Uh, I got the opportunity to road manage the fat boys, which yeah. was, a, it was, we did 50 cities in uh, 25 days. And it was the only time I was the slim one on tour. <laughs> and, and I, I never laughed and ate so much in, in that amount of time because they were like, the Black Three Stooges, and um, they were just fun guys to be around, and people loved the Fat Boys, and wherever we went, they wanted to take pictures of the Fat Boys eating their food, and we would have so much food on the bus, and and um, there's so many, they used to like to play jokes and pranks on each other, and these are big guys, you know, and uh, they like to wrestle on the bus, and I'm just a little guy, I know I used to get off stage, people thought I was a lot taller than I was, but I, I'm five foot six, and these guys bouncing each other on a bus used to kind of freak me out. But um, yeah, um, they, they loved food and they loved ladies, and uh, we really, that was a fun tour. We, um, uh, th there's only one uh, of the fat boys left because we lost Prince Marky D, I think two years ago now. I think it's two years, maybe, no, it's a year that Prince Marky D, the Puerto Rican one, uh, passed away. He was like a DJ in Miami or Florida or something. And Cool Roxky, he's still around. Thank God, he's on my Facebook list. But, uh, and then Buffy, one of the original human beatboxes, I mean, he was one of the originals. Uh, he passed away early. But uh, part of my job, okay, so, uh, all right, let me tell you a funny thing. Okay, so, on the road, um, Buffy, he was big, so he had to sleep in the back of the bus, and he had, they had like a barber's chair for him, and they had the air conditioning on full blast. We could, he couldn't sleep in the bunk. So I'd be doing the books in the front and talking to the driver, and we had two drivers. When you do 50 cities in 25 days, you got two drivers. So one of them, uh, Doug, he was the captain of the ship. He was a biker guy. And uh, then we had uh, Big Daddy, and Big Daddy, um, he looked like Ric Flair. He, he, he doubled as a driver and a bodyguard. Also, he was a kick-ass guitar player. So anyways, you talk a lot on these tours. And then in the middle of the night, <laughs> Buffy in his underwear, he was big. I don't want to know how many pounds. He was my size, but he was huge. Yeah. His underwear would be the only guy who knew how to work the microwave oven, which is on the front where we were. So there would be so many sandwiches in that in that microwave oven that he would collect during the day because people always give us food. And this is when we were coming out of Philly and we had those um, Philly cheesesteak sandwiches. And he would he would pretty much be sleepwalking and he'd push the remote and whatever and the thing would turn around. You could just see him drooling. It was like it was like 40 deuce in a Vanessa Del Rio, you know, booths. You know, it was like that. You know, he was just so excited. And then he would eat a sandwich and tip to the back, and we would just laugh so hard. But uh, yeah, okay. So then, this is when I knew that my days were numbered in the record business because 
we were in Memphis and part of my job as road manager was to get out and go into the venue before the act comes in to make sure everything is cool, that they're not put in an embarrassing position. You know, just want to know where the dressing room is so we can get them in and we get them out off the bus. So I'm going in and Doug is in front of me, the driver. He's the biker guy. And um, all of a sudden somebody starts shooting. There's bullets flying all over the place. So I don't know. My guardian angel has worked overtime because your guardian angel, I read your history. Yes. It's a miracle you're even talking from what I've seen for you. But my, I, these bullets, I don't know, they missed me and they caught Doug in the ass. So Doug was a really greasy guy. So Big Daddy, the bodyguard, comes running out and he goes, who got hit? I said, Doug. And he, so where did he get hit? He got hit in the ass. And then everybody backs up. <laughs> so, so we lay him down on the couch, right? Because nobody wanted to touch him because he's nasty. And uh, um, uh, we get the guys, we get the guys to safety. And so the ambulance comes. I don't know how the bullets miss me, but they miss me. And uh, I, I spent that night in the Elvis Presley Memorial Hospital uh, as they took care of uh, Doug. And back then was the new cell phones. It was yeah, yeah, fucking huge. It was, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm calling New York, you know, from the Elvis Presley. So he wouldn't stay in the hospital. So thank God he wasn't hurt bad. And uh, it was only a 22 that hit him in the ass. So, um, you know, they gave him antibiotics, blah, blah, blah. And they gave him a big bar of soap, which was the joke for the rest of the tour. <laughs> the Elvis Presley cure for bullet wounds was soap for Doug. And, and uh, he's the captain of his ship. He didn't quit. He, he wasn't going to give up the ship. But as, the, as we kept, as the tour kept going, the bullet was getting bigger. By the end of the tour, he got hit with a bazooka and lived. You know? <laughs> that was, uh, but it was I'm glad he wasn't hurt. Yeah, I'm glad too, but that's when I knew because why are you going to shoot at the fat boys? You know, know, fat boys was about fun. That's when you know, and then the, that's when gangster rap was was starting to come into the scene. I think it was like 1989 because mm -hmm. that that was their last tour. It was a lounging tour, and uh, they broke up after that. So you know, the, that was the end of it. And I, I remember gangster rap, gangster rap because we used to play. Uh, they used to play. The Fat Boys used to like to listen to some country, some um, some uh, some Bible music, some Christian music early in the morning, and then shoot right into N.W.A. Fuck the police, mm -hmm. and then at that time some Bobby Brown music. That would be the, the pretty much the routine in the morning, but that was towards the end of the um, the record business, my days in the record business, and then when I came back. Then the tour ended, was in New Orleans, and everybody cut out. You know, I woke up and everybody was gone already. That's everybody just wanted to go home. So I got home and had enough money to live for a while. At my time, at that time, my wife was uh, working in computers. And, no, she was working as, and uh, she. I had originally met her because uh, Ray Shepley worked as uh, for Sugar Hill Records and represented. Um, uh, uh, Sister Sledge, Grandmaster Flash, and um, the Sugar Hill Gang. And that's how I met her, because she bought me a demo tape to uh, Streetwise Records at the time, because I was doing A&R at the time. And I turned it down, and then uh, 
couple of years later, we had jazz. <laughs> so that was it. But then I was home and I was playing Mr. Moms and uh, putting jazz in the bathtub, bubble baths, uh, playing Aretha Franklin's greatest hits. It was like 50 cuts on that. She'd be like a raisin. And anyways, uh, then I had to get a real job, you know, and I had to get a job again. And we were running out of money. I was li- we were living in Union City. We were, we had a view of New York and um, just, it was just nice. So I had to get a real job. And I said, fuck, I have a degree. I forgot all about my degree. So I was reading the, the Amsterdam News and they were looking for caseworkers. Meanwhile, I, I was familiar with the AIDS virus because of the club action and I knew people were dying. And I remember they were calling it grids at one time, gay-related immune deficiency grids. And I wasn't afraid of the virus. A lot of people were very afraid of it. I wasn't afraid of it because I knew you had to earn it, you know? And, you know, you just didn't get it by me touching you and that kind of thing, which a lot of people was afraid of it. So I applied. I was reading the Amsterdam News, and they waived the New York City residency to work in social services. So... I started working and uh, my first gig, uh, my first assignment was the uh, South Bronx with people who were homeless who just had apartments. So here's another, here's another Forrest Gump story for you, my friend. Okay. So my first month, I, I forgot what the, the program, Office of Family Services. So I was working with families who were homeless who, or individuals who had just got apartments. So it was a really sweet gig. I got to take them to the museum. I had to take a group. Little did I know, we went to the museum and I found out a couple of years later that uh, one of the greatest Latin singers, and you can see her on the Dick Cavett show on YouTube. Remember Dick Cavett? Oh, I do. Yeah. Uh, so La Lupe, which was my mother's favorite, was one of those people that was in my group. Because she went from, you got to look up La Lupe. She went from like being this outrageous Latin performer to uh, her religion. You know, just just a little old lady that had lost it all because of lifestyles and stuff like that. But she was part of that group. So that was another Forrest Gump thing. <laughs> and that was like my mother's play. Every, every Saturday she would play La Lupe cleaning the house. That's like a tradition. Play music and clean the house. Yeah. And then from there... I want to stop right there. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that the story where she thought you were there to clean the fish? No, that's no, I haven't gotten to the fish. Oh, okay, yet. okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to so, jump ahead. No, no, that's good. But I'm glad you told me that because I wouldn't have remembered. Um, so then from there, they had a new unit called the AIDS unit, and it was fairly new. But um, you would get paid extra money, but a lot of people did not want to work in that unit, and. Uh, like I said, I wasn't afraid of the virus then. So for the little extra money and being that I would have been familiar with it, I volunteered for that group. So I worked with the Division of AIDS Services from 1990 to uh, uh, 1999 uh, when I got promoted. That's another story. But during that time, I worked for the Division of AIDS Services and we were on the front line of the AIDS virus, I'm proud to say. And um, so I went from limousines to being stuck in a uh, project elevator full of piss, wondering with a bag full of condoms. In fact, my first job, I remember having this, they would give you these big bags of condoms, right? And uh, I got home and my wife at the time, uh, they, we had a big fat cat, it was my daughter's cat called Pepsi Cola. 
knocked over my bag and all these condoms fell on the floor. My, my wife says, what kind of job you got now? What kind of job is this? But um, yeah. so I got to work with the AIDS population. So when I, I would get a pending and within 48 hours, I had to make a home visit. And sometimes the person would be dead. So it, it was it was a job I was, that people were glad to see me and uh, I was proud to be part of, but it was, it took a toll on me because I saw so much death. I mean, it was, it was terrible. Well, was, that was also a time where people were, as you mentioned, there's a lot of ignorance and it had nothing to do with them. It's just that it was brand new and people were afraid that if they touch you, if they breathed on you, if they, then you would catch the disease. So you're working at that time when it was very new and there was not a lot known about it. And there was a lot. My of office was on 30th care. and 8th Avenue. It was right across the street from the post office, the giant post office, 30th and 8th Avenue. Mm -hmm. And it was the welfare building on 30th and 8th Avenue. We were on the top floor. Even among coworkers, you press the top floor and they would just ease away from you on the elevator. Yes. So you felt that, you know, so you felt that. And, uh, you know, I felt the way my clients felt. I, I knew how, how they felt like... Uh, like uh like lepers you know I, I, I there's some scenes you know there's a scene i don't know if you ever seen um uh papillo with steve mcqueen oh, yeah i have with the, with the lepers well one of my first clients um he was a uh i, I think he was from colombia and his his girlfriend it wasn't his girlfriend because he was gay but they were very close she was from romania mm -hmm. and she loved him so much and she took they were hairdressers and uh he he didn't trust anybody and i remember him smoking a joint and he and he passed it to me and i and i took a hit of it and it just reminded me of the scene with steve mcqueen with the leper yes. with the leper to trust him and he passed him the cigar and stuff like that but um yeah it was a different scene for me and i, I really took that that job to heart and uh it got to be a point where um, a lot of my coworkers were like from Nigeria or, 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 or Russia, or they came from countries that, that some of the lifestyles were difficult for them to deal with. You know, I'm going to put it that way. Yeah. So we would trade clients. So they would call me Ramos, King of Queens. Because original King I had Queens. All, I had all the Queens and, and, and they, would, they would say, that Ramos would take care of you. And that's what I would do, my Ramos to the rescue thing. I would have my, my little Ramos. To the, but I had to keep a journal. So let's get to the fish tank. So in about 1994 is when they first started diagnosing women with, um, with HIV because of uh, uh, uterus cancer and that kind of stuff. And uh, so I, I started getting pendings from women you know, women referrals. You had 48 hours to make the home visit. And I had this one woman, I can't remember her name right now, but I kept journals because I had to keep journals. I was drinking a lot in those times. And we had the Blarney Stone was right downstairs where I used to cash my checks, run a tab, play my numbers, everything was there. And every, uh, all, only the people from the uh, uh, Penn Station that worked in the railroads would go there or the post office, the giant poster, or the welfare center. It was a working man's bar, you know? So um, I got lost my train of thought again. Keep me focused. We're talking about the, we're going to the fish tank story. Oh, the fish tank. Okay, so I finally, she's my first pending. 
It's a woman client. And I used to get a form called an M11Q, which used to tell you the diagnosis and what this client needed. And part of my job as a uh, caseworker for the Division of Aid Services was to make a home visit. And you made the home visit and you, you got to see how this person was living and you could assess them and see what they needed because uh, A, they would need public assistance, you know, food and B, they would need their Medicaid and, you know, and they would need their rent paid because, you know, they couldn't function anymore. So you had to help them out. So when I got there, she let me into the apartment. She was one of my first women clients. The other one I'll tell you was is more of a funny story. But this one, she was really bad shape. You could tell that she had dementia and she thought I was there to clean her fish tank. Yeah. And uh, when I looked at the fish tank, it was just black water. It was just black water. You know, that's when I knew she was gone. But this was a woman. This is the story because you see she had HIV. But how did she get HIV? She was a bodybuilder. And she, when I got to her trust, when she got to trust me, she showed me all of her bodybuilding you know, I have one of her pictures that I kept in my one of my journals that I never look, I never read them. I just write them and I leave them. But um, I have her picture. She's beautiful body, beautiful sister. And but she got it because her husband was an IV drug user. So that's how she got it. It just breaks your heart. Another one of my first women clients was because uh, um, I had a lot of transsexuals and transvestites, those kinds of, but the actual women, women. I hate to say it like that because that might be the wrong thing to say, but now you can say whatever the, you want here in the clause yeah, corner. Yeah, with the women uh, clients I had, uh, one of the first ones was Liana Valdez, and um, she lived in one of the welfare hotels. When I got to the, when I knocked on the door, this man ran out of the room, you know, and um, the door slammed, and so I knocked again, and then uh, she. Uh, she goes, who is it? And I go, this is Mr. Ramos from blah, 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 Division of Aid Services. And so she opens the door. She has no clothes on. And she's totally emaciated because of, you know, she was suffering full-blown AIDS. I didn't get people that were just HIV. They had to have full-blown AIDS at that time. Yeah. And um, she said, um, are you, you my chocho worker? which is funny if you're Puerto Rican or Spanish, which, you know, she's saying like, am I her chocho worker? I said, no, I'm your social worker. Please put your clothes on before I enter the thing. And she was smoking that crack. You can see the pipe coming up. So you can see the smoke coming up. And the first thing she says to me, she says, uh, oh, here's my grandson. Here, say hi. This is my grandson, Hendrix. Look how big he is. Hey, Hendrix, how you doing? See that hair? Hendrix, oh yeah. The heir apparent to the orphan throne. There it is. And that's Lola Chuleta. Are you another proud orphan? He can't hear you. He oh, says, okay. are you a proud orphan? Okay. He says, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, he wears the shirts now. He started, it was funny because uh, he was more into Frozen and Star Wars. So he was not into the warrior thing at all. But he, he's starting to wear, he's big enough to start wearing my hoodies and shit like that now. So he wore it to school and his teachers asked him, two of his teachers asked him, where'd you get that? And he goes, oh, my father was in the movie. They asked him to get autographs. So he ah. came to me, his science teacher, one other teacher, I asked love it. autographs. It's so funny. So now he's like, well. And then I, uh, when, I, when I came back from Florida, uh, 
I spent a year in Florida during the uh, pandemic away from everything. And um, he, uh, he's like, Grandpa, my teachers asked you if you would give them an autograph. I said, sure, no problem. As long as they pass you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I like that. Well, you know what? My, I love the names of your grandkids. I know Hendrix after Jimi Hendrix, and you also have Santana. Santana, Ana Carlos Santana. Yes. I first saw Santana in 1969 in the film East, and uh, it was good times. I was doing bad, bad things at that time, but uh, I heard this guy goes, okay, I'm doing something really bad, but that's what I, the way I was living back then. Anyways, this guy named Gonzalo says, you want to hear some rock music? I, no, I don't want to hear no rock. It was, everything was uh, Latin music and, and Motown at the time. And, uh, and there was the, the the first album with the lion on it, with all the faces on it. And I put it on and did what I was doing. And I was like, man, this this is like, I feel this. And then a couple of weeks later, I was fiending on the fiending on the low east side looking for some product. And uh, I saw the Fillmore East and Santana was going to be there. And I said, let me go see Santana. And it was Santana, Balling Jack, and the Voices of East Harlem for like $7. Wow. And... Uh, Somebody passed me a doobie and it, it changed my whole life. And I'm a <laughs> Santana fan after that. But yes, yeah, Santana, Ruby Ray. And both my grandkids were student of the month on the same time. One is in kindergarten, one's in first. Congratulations. But you know, this back to the virus thing. Uh, my granddaughter didn't know what it's like to go to school without a mask. So when they finally dropped the mask thing, uh, I thought it was such a sad thing that they never really saw their faces unless they're eating, you know? Yeah. But, uh, as soon as we took the mask off, they got sick again. You know, they didn't catch, uh, thank God, they didn't catch the virus, but one of her classmates now has the virus and uh, she came home with and had the flu. It's like, it's tough out there, man. It's tough. I think I'm going to start wearing the mask again, I think. Yeah. But no, I was, It was funny because I, I used to work in, in the pharmacy business, I was a pharmacy, I was in the manager of Rite Aid and CVS. So at the, I have a friend, a lot of friends who are pharmacists, and they were telling me last year in 2020, there was no flu at all because everybody had masks on. So they didn't even know what the flu vaccine was going to be like because nobody got sick. And then all of a sudden this year, because the mask came off, everybody started to get sick. And yeah, it went up 25% uh, uh, in a week this week. So I'm, I'm going to go back to wearing a mask. Yeah, because due to my health issues, I had to be really, really careful. And my daughter caught it twice. Uh, yeah, I had it the, once. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's. A, I say, I swear, I did have it. Right, and my daughter goes, "Dad, you was asleep for two weeks. <laughs> right after the Super Bowl, you were asleep for like two weeks. Right after uh, J Lo and and uh, Shakira, Shakira, man, about the next month, everybody was sick in March, man, and then the bodies were dropping." But I wound up in Florida uh, for a year with a nurse. But um, that's another story. All right. So the, the, the Division of Aid Services, man, was, uh, was right on the front lines. And it was just, it was just so sad. I had a, one time, I have so many stories that one time, uh, I, had, I used to have a, a couple. Uh, uh, they were in their 60s. And that was really old for people with AIDS at that time. And they lived at the Barber Hotel, which is uh, the city used to pay these horrible places, $1,500 a month for these one rooms, sharing the bathrooms with other people on the hallway, just nasty places. You open the door, you fall in, you land on the bed. 
But anyways, uh, Pansy and um, I can't think of his name right now. Anyways, uh, he used to come up with his uh, shopping cart. He was starting to get dementia. And since they lived so close to the welfare center, he would always stop by. And I just knew what a pain in the ass this guy is. But, you know, I never said that. It would leave me alone. But, you know, I would always talk to uh, Mr. Robinson. That was his name. I would talk to him. Then eventually he died, right? Because all my clients died. And um, uh, so Pansy was still alive. So Pansy got to keep the room. And then uh, eventually Pansy died. So when Pansy died, I knew she had um, relatives. And so I went to the hotel room and um, the guy let me in because uh, they knew me. So they let me in her room and I was looking to find a next of kin. And uh, the room was full of bed bugs. It was just swamped with bed bugs. And eventually I found one of those old, those old address books. And I, I was able to reunite her body with her family. But in the interim, I found Isaac in a urn. So I told, uh, uh, I can't think of his dad. I think it was Frankie, the, the hotel manager. What are you going to do with Isaac? He said, I'm going to throw him in the garbage. I was like, I, I can't let that happen. You know, I just can't let that happen. Yeah. You know, and so I I called up Pansy's uh, relatives and Isaac, his name was Isaac. Would you take Isaac? And they, they wouldn't want nothing to do with Isaac. They didn't want nothing to do with Isaac. So I wound up with Isaac on my desk for like nine months. And then all the crackheads I had, I used to say, you keep smoking that crack, you're gonna wind up on my desk. It was, you know, he became like this paperweight on my desk. Yeah. And, um, and then I had a college reunion thing, and it was like nine months later in Hampshire College, for the third time I'm talking about it, was built on an apple orchard. So it's just a beautiful location, just beautiful for very, very rich kids at that time. And, um, which is how I met Harry Belafonte, which is another story. You but, have a, um, lot of, a lot of good I, stories. I, I know, my daughter tells me that. You're bringing them out of me, too. So <laughs> I decided then to take Isaac to Hampshire College and get rid of him. I'm exposing this. I don't know if it's too late. The statute of limitations. Yeah. So um, I think this was in 1992 or 93. Anyways, I went up to a, an alumni thing and uh, um, we found a beautiful tree. And uh, I said, well, we're gonna get rid of Isaac here. So we did, a, some of the students did some prayer things. Some of the students helped me out. And uh, because I was well known then, you know, I'm an alumni. I was one of the first Puerto Ricans to graduate from there. In fact, I graduated in 76, but I'm the class of 72 because when I went in 72, Hampshire College did not have a graduating class yet. It was so brand new, which is the reason why I went there. Uh, and um, so we had to wait till a graduating class for it to be fully accredited. Anyways, I grad so I graduated in 76 or 72 is, is the year. I, I'm a Reynolds from this class of 72 instead of 76. Anyways, um, so we took him and we had a circle around the tree and we kept passing him around and it's amazing this was a little emaciated man uh 
and how much ashes were in there. It was unbelievable. Wow. So about a month later, one of the students sent me a new, uh, a local newspaper, and they said remains were found that they found those ashes. But that's where I, that's where I let Isaac go. But I, I just it just hurt me when the guy said, "I'm just going to throw it in the garbage." I just yeah. like nah. Even though he was uh, no matter how he lived, and even though he gave me a lot of problems, he was still a human being. And that was the problem with me with the uh, age thing. I, I got. You just couldn't help it. You try not to, but you just, no matter how much uh, somebody was really nasty to you or, or like I had one guy who I knew, they, the city messes, makes a lot of mistakes. Although we take care of a lot of people, the city makes a lot of mistakes due to all the amount of people that you service. And this kid didn't get his money. He just came out of prison and he didn't get his money when he was supposed to get his money and that's all he wanted. And then finally, maybe a month later, he got his money retro. And I pleaded with the city. I was like, don't give him this money. You know, just put a little bit in there. Don't give it. Because I knew what he was going to do. Yeah. Sure enough, he got his money. He went to the movies and overdosed in the movies. That's what he wanted to do. And I knew it. I knew it. But yeah. you can't do it. I had another woman that uh, um, TB was, was one of my main concerns because a lot of my clients got TB because they were so sick and their immune system was so bad. And I had one that was in the hospital and because um, anytime I went to the hospital, I had to wear a mask and it wasn't for me catching anything. It was for me making my clients sick except for TB. So it was her pickup. So she want, she needed uh, her car, the EBT car, which I could authorize so she could get her benefits. So they warned me that she left the hospital and she's just TB, so I was able to deal with it. Then when I went to the bar, I saw her in the bar, and these guys are hitting on her, and I know what she has, but the, due to confidentiality, she looks at me, I look at her, and these guys are married. They're going to take the bus and go through the Lincoln Tunnel. Oh. And, you know, it's just, and you can't, it's confidentiality. You just can't, you, you know, just, just. Just it is. You got to think. But she didn't say anything. She never told anybody. She was hustling. She was hustling. She was hustling. Also demented. You know, there was a lot of people who were just sick. You know, just sick. And I had amazing clients too. You know, I had. uh, It's hard for me to say who some of them are without you guessing, because you're so smart. But (laughs) and I still uh, respect the confidentiality, even though they've been dead for decades. But um, yeah, this one particular client. um, he was famous, so I know Uncle Jack we wouldn't mind me talking about him because he's the only one that I that lived, and he just died like three years ago. And uh, he was uh, uh, he was the mother of you know you have your different houses when you're in that uh, when you dress in drag. So there's a movie that he did that he starred in called The Queen, which came out in the '60s. Okay, and. Um, uh, he was called uh, Flawless Sabrina, and uh, he's queen mother, and he, he's just very famous guy. And uh, he taught my daughter how to walk in heels, and she used to call him Uncle Jack, and uh, <laughs> Titi Jack. He used to call him Titi Jack, Auntie Jack, and um, he was just a fabulous man with a tremendous history and uh, just a, just super diva. And he had a house on Fifth Avenue. He had an apartment on Fifth Avenue, and they so wanted to get rid of him because he had that old rent thing where 
he's paying like, you know, I think he was paying like 600 a month for on Fifth Avenue, Central Park, right across the street from the park. They couldn't wait for this guy to die. Yeah. And, uh, but part of my job was to help them keep their apartments and stuff like that. So he always told my daughter um, that I saved his life, but I was just doing my job. But I, we got to be very, very close that he would take jazz to, to the park. Cause that at that time, jazz was singing at the Metropolitan Opera. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would take her for rehearsal up 8th Avenue, up 9th Avenue, cause um, we wasn't taking no cabs. You got off at Penn Station. I mean, at Port Authority, we just walk up, you know, 8th Avenue to Lincoln Center. And a lot of my clients were hustling on the streets. And my daughter would say, is that a boy or a girl? And, you know, they would go, Mr. Ramos, Mr. Ramos. And, and, and I would go, they are whatever they want to be, Jazz. And then as she got old enough to walk by herself, they would look out for her. You know, that's, that's Mr. Ramos's daughter. So she had a good background. And also she would sing for some of my clients to when they were dying. I had a German prince, I had advertising executives that made incredible uh, uh, slogans that you know very well, but if I mention it, somebody might piece it together and I would never want it to hurt anybody. But um, there was many times when I would go to an apartment complex and the doorman would point to the service entrance, you know, just look at me and point to the service entrance and, you know, I couldn't reveal who I was, but I would go, no, 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 I'm, I'm a friend of Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. But they would, uh, you know, that, you know, that racism always comes through, you know, it always yeah, comes through unfortunately. In, in ways, you know, the, only, the Spanish doorman would point to me and, and do that, you know, just crazy stuff. Yeah. Well, I want to go, I want to get into one story because I thought we talked about the fear that AIDS, people had of AIDS, including your workers, but you always had such empathy. I want to talk about the time because you love to get up early. You went to work. You opened up your coffee. Oh, man. Yeah, you listened so well. All right. I'll tell you that story. Okay, so I have this thing about time. Um, I'm always the first one at work. I always had that kind of reputation of being uh, first at work. But if I have an appointment, I'm going to be there an hour and a half early. I just can't help it. I just um i i just something about me i like to be on time or if not early i always like that in fact my daughter used to get pissed off because we the dentist wouldn't even be there and i'm already there with her the dentist is not even here so anyways when the elevator door opens it opens onto the floor so i'm the first one at work so i got my coffee i got my roll my bacon egg and cheese on a roll it's one word Bacon, egg, and cheese on a roll is one word. <laughs> <laughs> Say that three times fast. Yeah, bacon, egg, and cheese on a roll, one word. And um, I, I, I smell shit. I open my coffee and I smell shit. I was like, what? And I touch my ass to see if I had a stroke. You know, I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm looking <laughs> and I'm the only one in the office. And, and it's really strong smell. And then I'm in a cubicle. So I look around my cubicle and one of the clients had managed to spend the night uh, and, and, and was unconscious and, and there, was sleeping, um, drugged out or whatever. She wasn't unconscious. I'm not going to say unconscious because we would call the ambulance, but um, we slept in, the, in their feces. And um, so anyways, <laughs> so I moved to the back after I called maintenance and I moved to the back. So people had started to come to work and as they're coming off the elevator, they have their different faces. You know, 
um, happy, sad. But as soon as they smell that thing, everybody freezes when they smell that shit. So anyways, to show you how bad AIDS was, uh, people were afraid of, they call up my man on uh, cruise. He was the he was the superintendent assistant in the in the building. And Cruz comes upstairs and sees the situation. He goes, I'm not picking that shit up. That's age shit. So it became a big thing. And they had to go downtown and bring somebody with a spacesuit to wow. uh, clean that thing. That's how bad. That was like 94. Yeah. And then I remember when Magic Johnson came out with, it, with the office where everybody was so sad because it was, it was a, they, you know, the, it was a kind of job that, uh, when we first started, they didn't do it for after, but they would let you go to the funerals. Like I went to a lot of funerals. Uh, at that time, they would just they would just burn you, you know, just ashes. They didn't have. Uh, they were just burning the. I forgot. I think it was the Redmond Funeral Home on Fourteenth Street, and um, but it was sad. A lot of times, I'd be the only one there, or a lot of times, I would see how this was before domestic partnership. So you would see. True love. I learned courage and true love during my days as a uh, caseworker for the Division of AIDS. I, extreme courage because these people knew it was a death sentence. Because at that time, it was a death sentence. Yeah. And uh, they didn't have the cocktails and stuff like that. I knew that all my clients were going to die. And they knew that they were going to die. It was a really weird kind of thing where uh, you would hear jokes like this. You think I look bad today? Wait till, till tomorrow. No, I kind of, you had to joke about it. I'm that kind of guy. I guess you're a comedian. You know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. No, I, I, you know? I, I always tell people you can joke about anything as long as you can make it funny. You don't have to, you, you don't have to be mean about it, but you can make anything funny. And, and it's, uh, it's also a way to let it go too. Exactly. You know, you stay, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm sorry for your loss and, and, you know, somebody close to you and I'm sorry, Richard, for your loss, but, um, What's the, what's happening with the will? You know, he's something like he say something stupid like that. You know, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you and I. So. That's why you and I get along so well because you and I have that same dark sense of humor. And yeah. I, I am yeah. the same way too. <laughs> but like you said, it's it's, it's a release, and it, you and it changed my life. You dealt with so many different things that that you have to joke about. Yeah, and and uh, and another reason why I was so committed to the AIDS thing was because. If anybody should have got that virus, it should have been me. I've always felt that deep down in my heart because of my lifestyle. Yeah. Before I turned into a good guy, I was so involved. With, I did everything. Uh, I mean, it was the 70s, man. You know, it was the 70s. You know, multiple sex partners, IV drug use, uh, the whole bit. You know, since I was like 14, 13, 14 years old, growing up in the Bronx, $2 heroin bags versus $5 pot bags. The heroin wins every time. Mm -hmm. So... It was a, so I knew that I had to do this. I just felt it was something I had to do. And I completely shut off everything to do with the record business. The Apache really didn't exist anymore. It was Mr. Ramos. It was my new thinkers. I didn't know what I, I was so used to being called Apache my whole life that Greg just didn't sound right, you know? Yeah. So I just, I don't know. My mother never called me Greg, you know? It was just, uh, I was always called Apache, but I couldn't. You know, I'm not going to introduce myself as Apache when I'm working in social services. You know, they came out eventually because I have a tattooed on my arm. But, um, you know, I, I was I was Mr. Ramos. I like Mr. Ramos. The Ramos, King of Queens. The King of Queens for a while. And then um, 
yeah, I did that. There's so many stories on the AIDS thing around so much courage. You know, people know they're going. Oh, that's what I want to say. The love. I saw true love, you know. Um, you know, growing up as a Latino male, that macho shit, and growing up in the Bronx and all that stuff, that uh, gay thing and all that stuff, it was it was fairly new, even though I had some relatives, you know, things you had to learn about. And I saw true love done because of people with the same sex, but just loving one human being after the other. When you wipe somebody's ass, when you take care of them and they just throwing up and you just take care of them, take that's that's so that's real love, man. And then I was before the domestic partner stuff. Meanwhile, that person's mother and father or relatives didn't want nothing to do with them because of their lifestyle and everything. And then when they died, uh, they would come in and take everything away because this person who was taking care of this person to the end. Oh, no. Oh, um, I'm still here. Yeah, I just got to get you back. Now. Jazz, okay. I lost. Uh, Jazz to the rescue. No, I think she's. Oh, there you go. I did it myself. All right, and and then that's when I saw it was just so unfair. They weren't even allowed to go to the funeral. They yeah. weren't allowed to go to the hospital. You know, so I was so glad when that domestic partner stuff came out because I saw true love, true courage. I mean, uh, what what I remember visiting a client uh, at Saint because I had to make home visits and I had to make hospital visits and. And um, so much pain that they would be in. Like one time I touched Victor's foot and he screamed in pain. I felt so bad. You know, you just had to uh. maneuver your way through that stuff. And then, you know, the funny stories and all that. But then uh, you could take a day off or two. It's called mental health days. You know, mental health days. You had to take them, but they don't do that no more. Oh, you would go to the funerals and be the only one there. It would be sad. but. Uh, I was drinking a lot then. I was drinking a lot then. And uh, eventually you take a civil service exam, right? Now, one of those guys that um, that doesn't do well at tests. <laughs> so uh, when, I was, uh, when I was working as an AIDS uh, caseworker, I had a, had a, uh, a Jewish dad, uh, Mr. Ash. And uh, Mr. Ash, uh, he goes... You do everything wrong, but you are great at what you do. <laughs> and he, he took me under his wing and uh, he saw my compassion. Yeah. You know, he saw that, in, but you got to work within the system and there's rules set up. Because one time I brought an AIDS baby home. You know, I had a client on a Friday. It wasn't even my client because I couldn't. There was two. I worked with single adults. And then there was another unit that worked with families. I couldn't work with the families because I couldn't deal with the children having AIDS. It was hard enough for me dealing with the adults with AIDS, but people born with AIDS was just too much for me. Mm -hmm. Anyways, this guy comes in and um, you would do housing and you would call for emergency housing to get people housed. And he came in on a Friday and everything was closed and I, I was going home. And But I had a reputation in the neighborhood there because they knew who I was. And... Uh, Mr. Ramos, would you take my baby? And I was like, take your baby? He says, could you please take my baby for the weekend? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, take the, I don't, I didn't know what to do. And he says, please, I ain't got nowhere to go. And I'm like, fuck. So I took the baby, which I probably would have gotten fired if anybody found out, but yeah, 
So I bought the, and then I had to explain to my wife when she opened the door and saw me holding the baby, whose last name happened to be Ramos, which is a popular Latino name, Ramos. Anyways, uh, my daughter wanted to uh, us to adopt it, and my neighbors bought clothes for the baby, and it became a big thing. And and uh, but the baby had a happy ending because he died, but he had a sister who worked for the police department who adopted the baby. I don't know what happened after that, but. I would do stuff like that, which you can't do, you know. Yeah, especially now. I mean, like you said, uh, you would have been fired. In I would have been fired, yeah. You can't yeah. do stuff like that. But at that time, two hours Bob in the ninth, you know, the guy is desperate, so I did it. But uh, And then after that, I um, – oh, sorry, so the civil service exam, I took it after my second year in working because every year I thought I was going to quit and go back in the record business at that time. I was still – antsy for the record business and um, then the more time you put in the more time you realize you're getting a pension and this is the real deal so yeah. I, t- I turned down some deals about going back to the record business because my daughter needed braces right so i'm in the union now i got a union job a city yeah. job yeah. so i said forget about it i completely knocked off the uh, record business never thought about acting again just just forgot about it and then I got promoted. And finally, my name comes up for the civil service exam test I took. I'm like on the last page towards the bottom. And finally, my name gets called off the list because your name eventually gets called off the list. So it was like six, seven, eight years later, almost nine years later, I get called off the list. So I go to the pool and this is like you're a free agent, right? So you mm-hmm. go, you're about to be a supervisor. So you go to this pool and who's in the pool? My Jewish dad, Mr. Ash. He's now a big shot in, in uh, what you call fair hearing. So um, uh, I had filled out where I wanted to go. And he says, no, you're not going. I got where you're going. I go, I said, I want to stay with AIDS. He goes, he says, you, your daughter's going to an expensive private school, right? I go, yeah. He goes, you want to make overtime? I go, yeah. He goes, well, you're not going to make overtime division of AIDS services. Mm-hmm. Said, but I'm committed to AIDS. He goes, well, then volunteer on your spare time. He said that if you want to make money, you're going to come to the fair hearing. Now, I didn't want to go to fair hearing because fair hearing is, um, okay, how can I say it? Okay, when I was an AIDS uh, caseworker, my clients were glad to see me because they needed me, okay? Yeah. So they were happy to see me. They weren't happy with their diagnosis of being there, but they're happy to see me because they have somebody to help them. The, the uh, fair hearing is a whole different beast. Fair hearing is uh, enforcing the Welfare Reform Act of 1996, mm-hmm. where you have to work for your benefits, okay? So all of a sudden, I go from Mr. Uh, Ramos to the rescue to Mr. Ramos, the fair hearing supervisor. And so... I got sent to the Bronx, the same center I worked with when I started. <laughs> and um, uh, the writing job said that I'm the fair hearing supervisor with, with, a, with about four other people. And uh, you come to me when you're in trouble. So everybody's not in a good mood when they come and see me. <laughs> if I can't resolve your, first you went to a conciliation, they couldn't resolve it. So they sent it to fair hearing. They always sent it to fair hearing anyways. So they, so if I cannot resolve your situation, you have to go see a judge. 
And also your sanction, your sanction for 30 days, 90 days, 180 days. So people are very, very angry. So I had to, had to switch up. It was a total switch up from uh, being Mr. Warmth to uh, trying to be the tough guy. Not tough yeah. guy, but, you know, enforcing, you know, so. You have to go back to being orphan number two. Yeah, my stomach was... Every Sunday night, I had to. I was taking anxiety medication at the time too. I could, I just didn't want to go to work. And then so many times I wanted to quit. It was so many times. So how long did you last in that job? Uh, fifteen years. Yeah. Wow. 15. Wait. So after you got promoted in civil service, you lasted that long? Fifteen years. It. Well, altogether, altogether, I got altogether. I got twenty-eight years. Wow. So I did ten. AIDS and the rest was, uh, no, I did one with the Office of Family Services, 10 with the uh, Division of AIDS Services, um, which is, I'm glad I finally got out of there because um, it, it was too much. But, you know, it's not as bad anymore because people are living now, you know, just it's living. Yeah. It was not a death sentence no more. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but at that time, you know, you come, you go to work and you found out this died but then you would get another client you know so you didn't really have time to you know you know it was just like you had to maintain a caseload and sometimes the caseload got too big and you had it was it was a tough job it was tough well job. even back then it shows that if you had the money you can get the proper treatment magic johnson's a perfect example i mean he is living and he got it early in, in the age stages that's true that's so true i, I had the money with, uh, i worked with the um with the uh, gay men's health center and all the different um, programs for AIDS people, I would connect my clients and use them. Um, that, that was that was the toughest toughest gigs I ever had was that, that time yeah. here. So you so let's jump ahead a little bit. You retired, and I love this because your daughter got you on the Facebook, and you realized that everybody <laughs> thought everybody thought you were dead. Well, no, no, not that. No, no. All right. So she, she's, she's like turning me on to Facebook yeah. and she says, dad, there's always people who get in touch with me. They want to know what you're doing. I don't know who's who. So I always say you're fine, but there's this thing called Facebook and I, and you make friends and I go, how am I going to make friends? She goes, dad, all you have to do is put your name out there and you're going to have like friends right away. So we did it. And um, next thing I know, I'm reunited with all these people in the record business, all these people that have been looking for me. Because I was very bitter about the record business I, when I left. I was bitter about it. But, um, yeah, it was just time to go. I had to move on. My my role was to do the age thing. It was yeah. my destiny. It was my destiny. But, uh, yeah, yeah I got back. And, I, and then the acting thing came about. And then Debbie Van Valkenburg getting in touch with me and, and telling me about these things, about these reunions and how I should be part of it. And because uh, I didn't, the very first one I did was Chilla. It was absolutely horrible. I didn't even know what I was doing. The, the, the warrior guys didn't even talk to me. I mean, I didn't, I barely <laughs> knew them. And I had like, like copies of, of, of pictures. And then people would, would take it. They just wanted my signature, basically, you know. And then I got him to it, you know. I got him to it. And then yeah. my uh, uh, my daughter, uh, who had done movies and um, other things, and was a paid performer at the Met at the age of ten, 
she found out through SAG that they had been looking for me all these years and that I had uh, money waiting for me. And she got me that money in uh, 25 years worth of residuals. It was a lot. Of, yeah, it was a lot. It was a nice big check. And uh, I said, right then and there, she's my manager. <laughs> and it's funny because she just got a letter the other day that they're looking for her now. So she's going to get one too. Well, I also love the fact because I, I doing my research, you're just such a great guy. You'll take pictures for free, give pictures. And then your daughter went out to eBay and said, you know how much money people are selling these pictures for? <laughs> know, you need I to had, make some money. I had no idea of that stuff. I really had no idea. That's funny. I had no idea. In fact, um, I have a new agent, Mark. He said, um, he said, Apache, you're going to make more money than you ever did. You're going to, I'm like, okay, this is another rap, blah, blah, blah. And he was right. He was right. And he hooked me up uh, when I did Chile. He paid, they paid for the pictures. They paid for the hotel. Uh, transportation I took care of because I always have a crew that I work with. And um, uh, it, it turned, I made a good, I, I made good money. He made good money. And now he says he's going to be booking me for some West Coast gigs and so good. now that I'm retired, I can use it, you know, especially I'm paying alimony. So it'll come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely comes in. Well, being on Facebook actually got you some movie roles. Absolutely. Uh, Facebook uh, has been very, very good to me. As long as I stay out of Facebook jail. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's so hard to do. It's so hard to do. I mean, people are so sensitive now. I can use the, the same meme that I used like, Five years ago, uh, 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 there's one that I, I did the other day that put me in jail, but I, I've used it like every year. I use pretty much the same ones. I just read at a good time. I, I read to if I like it. Like this one goes, I love you all except you. You're a douche. You know who you are. <laughs> they banned me for that. They said it really? was, yeah, they said it was like, forget about it but meanwhile the years before all i did was just re you know just resend it so they got very sensitive it's a whole different world like, like i don't know um i learned about how you need to talk to people through hra because we would have these monthly meetings on how to address somebody like i never had a problem if a client told me her name was his name is elizabeth and you want to be addressed that way that's the way i'm going to address you some of my coworkers found that to be a problem. I don't know why. Yeah, why? <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. You know, some people should do certain jobs. You know, they just get these jobs. But yeah. you know, if you want to be called Elizabeth or you want to be called uh, Twinkle, whatever you want, any way you want me to address you, that's the way I'm going to address you. You know, I know what it is to have your alter ego. Apache's my alter ego. You know, I. Um, I like if, if I'm doing a scene or something, I'm going to be very nervous and everything like that until the second it's showtime and then I'm ready to go. But until then, I'm going through all kinds of shit. I should have said this. Like when I finish with you tonight, I'm going to be like, damn, I should have told him that story. And I said, you know, that's the, that's the way you work too, right? Oh, that's no, definitely. I, I am the same way. I, I go through it after I record it and look, I was like, oh, I forgot about this. So that's why. I, I love the fact we're just having a conversation. We're going back and forth. It's not like a scripted interview. We're just two guys talking. And I, and I love this. And so sometimes I'll, I'll re have you remember something. Oh, yeah, I almost forgot about that story. And I, yeah, I, yeah, tell yeah. Stories. I love that. But I was, it's funny because we, I was 
doing my research and I've, you said that like you never had to audition for a role because of Facebook, which is great. I watched Vamp Bikers the other day. I love it. Are you like? Oh, dude, I got to get Eric. Eric won the uh, best uh, best film, best director at the Coney Island Film Festival. And that it was so funny because uh, it was early in my Facebook career when uh, he sent me a film that he did. It was a uh, tribute to the Warriors, and they were dressed up as the Warriors, and I just can't think of the title of it now. But uh, I thought it was really good, and I thought it was an, anytime somebody imitates you, I think that's a form of flattery, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, so I thought it was cool. So I met them in Coney Island, and they were so happy that I met them that they, I was working, I started working with these bike, biker gangs. Um, and um, they were, they, they had such, they treated me so well because I was in the Warriors, you know? They gave me, they gave me, it's like when you go to another uh, state, and you from New York City, you get the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's up to you to fuck it up. You know, but you get the benefit of the doubt. You from New York, you know. But um, yeah, they were they were so good to me. So I got involved with his movie projects and believed in him. And I think he's going places. He keeps making films. And from there, I mean, Eric, I like working with him. You, sh I'll get him to if you want to interview him. Yes, and, uh, I would love that. Please do that. You know, because I love the movie and I loved how funny it was, too, because you, you're the uh, the police chief or whatever. You're like, all right, Starsky and Hutch, get the work. Get out of here. And you're just going I don't on. know. He did three. You know, there's some scenes I've done that didn't make it to the movie because he had a disagreement with the cameraman. Like, uh, I have this great scene with uh, Chi-Chi. You know, Chi-Chi, uh, uh, you're a comedian, uh, Angel Salazar. Oh, yeah, Definitely. Okay, so Angel's going to be at this thing that's coming up in June. But uh, Angel and I, I love Angel. Um, uh, we get along really good together, and I love him because he's one of the few people shorter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but he's in an iconic movie, uh, Scarface. Oh, my God, you know? yes. And uh, uh, when I was at the welfare set, uh, when I was at the Division of Aid Services, I mean uh, – when I was a fair hearing supervisor, uh, one day a week, you're the e-worker. You're the emergency worker. So you handle everything that comes in through the door, uh, which was my worst day. But I used to have my little shtick because I know if you have a clipboard, you're looking for it, right? So I would always have my little clipboard, okay? And uh, so people are there. They're not happy to be there. And I see people at their worst, Okay. So I go to comedy, okay? Uh, I've been told so many times I should have been a comedian, but uh, I, I love comedians. I love what they do. But um, now it's so tough for them because now people want to kick your ass. That is so fucking sick. That is. Anyway, that's another story. Yeah, but, that's, uh, another, that's another rabbit hole we can go down. But we, uh, yeah. That, but, and uh, you know what the other thing too is, well, besides everybody being so politically correct now, and the fact that if they don't like your joke, they'll jump on stage and tackle you. Now, also, they film your set with their phones. And by the time you go see them live, you're like, oh, this is old. And they're trying out new material. And it's not it's not done yet. It's not fully formulated yet. And then they're like, this guy sucks now. Like, no, he doesn't suck. He's trying. Out. So, yeah, right now would be the toughest time to be a comedian for all those reasons and many more that I just brought up. So I would do this. Okay, so say 
Hey, my E-Day was Monday morning, which is the absolute worst, which means I didn't sleep all night Sunday before, which means I had agita up the ass and I was doing my buzz bar pills like a motherfucker. Anyways, so you have a room full of angry people. You have at least 40 or 50 people on that room and they've signed the list and you come in and I would take the list and put it on my clipboard and I would look at the list and I would go, Dolores Gonzalez, come on down. And that would just open up a whole big thing. The whole, uh, they were my audience and they would get so excited or they would say, who the fuck? And I would say, come on down. And they would just all start laughing and they'd go, oh, that's crazy, Mr. Ramos. He's one of the good ones. You can hear them whispering. He's one of the good ones. <laughs> You know, because I was pro-client. I grew up on public assistance. I know the deal, you know. Yes. So even though I would get in trouble with my superiors enforcing the Welfare Reform Act, I knew that this was bullshit. And so I would, I would pro-client and I gave a lot of people breaks. And I learned um, that, you know, I used to be a, uh, a, a, a you know, anti-war guy. You know, I burnt my draft card. I, I, you know, me and Muhammad Ali was my idol. You know, I was down with the young lords, uh, you know, and I saw the whole Vietnam War thing, what it was doing to my people. With my, you know, so I was involved with all of that stuff. But uh, I've learned when I went into HRA that I was more useful. Uh, I was, I could be more radical. I could change things. I could make things better if I was part of the system as opposed to railing against it. And when that finally hit me, you know, uh, I was able to make, do a lot of good things. And, and when I retired, it's really funny because when I retired, the city reverted back to giving clients breaks and all that stuff because they knew this, because, you know, it sounds, I know people, you know, like I've become more, um, let me see, more conservative as I get older, but um, there's certain things that I learned that some people just, it sounds right that, okay, you gotta have to work for your benefits, but there are people that just it, don't fit into those boxes. You can't put people in boxes, you know? You can't put people in boxes. And when, and that, when I worked for the uh, Division of AIDS Services, like I said, people needed me and wanted me. When I was at the other, when I was on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I, I would get cursed out or I would get blessed maybe four or five times a day, you know, so you have to have a thick skin. Yeah, definitely. And you have to have a sense of humor because uh, I only had two computers thrown at me in my whole history, which is really good because anytime I got a new worker, at first I didn't know what I was doing, but then when I became a vet, you know, um, and I would get a new worker who was, I could see the fear in their face because, you know, you really don't have no security. By the time security comes, you're, you're stabbed or whatever. But uh, uh, with a sense of humor, you can, you can ease down things, you know, you can, um, especially if the person knows that you're not belittling them and, and, and that you are making an honest effort to listen to them no matter how wrong they are. then sometimes you got to make some choices. Like if I got a guy who just came out of prison, which is my favorite because they usually were trying to do the right thing when they get out. But then you get some guys that come out that, you know, they don't even see you, man. They're just there. They, they just like their whole face is tatted up, you know, and 
they don't even see you. They've had so much, they're so damaged, you know, that it's better to, when it, when they say when in doubt, punt. You know yeah. what I'm saying? You got to pump sometimes. You got to know when to hold them. them. Know when to fold them. There you go. I can say I've lived or I've worked in the public for all my life. I and saw that. 277 gigs in one year. Yep, yep. And only four states. What was it? Four no, states. Now it, it, it ended with nine states and I did over 400 shows. I did it for five, four years. I did comedy. Yeah. So I, I, I'm having a good time. I respect that, bro. I respect that. Thank you. Thank you. I, appreciate I was like, why does he want to, Let me find out what he's about, you know? So let me see. I, was like, I yeah. know you're on YouTube. You oh, know? yeah, I'm on YouTube. But, uh, I, I'm, what you should do is I, I'm going to send you my comedy DVD and I also send you my book. After, I'm keeping easy. <laughs> I will definitely send you both. I'm sure, knowing your sense of humor, I love when you and I go back and forth with text. I'm always laughing at the text you send me. You have a great... You know that, that was the greatest invention. Because after I was a, a salesman and all that, I just can't talk to people on the phone. You know, maybe my girlfriend, if I just met her and we're just going out, but, you know, texting was made for me. You know, I hate when people call me up. Hey, imagine what you're doing. I was doing nothing until you called me. What do you want? But uh, unless you want to talk to your girlfriend or something like that. But other than that, texting came in and I learned how to text and I know how to put things together. Okay. Like, Facebook got this new thing where you have the stories. So I put yes. the stories in. I make things up. Like tonight, I got, I have a uh, uh, country western song with these people. Were actually, it's a picture taken by um, that uh, that director who uh, who they say uh, was the actual moon landing. He did the actual moon landing. What's that director's name? Oh my Is god. It? I, I know what you're talking about. I can't think of his name, though. Uh, I'll have to check that one. Anybody who's watching this show, Google it. Yeah. Tell us, please. The guy that they said. Anyways, he took this picture, Stanley Kubrick. Oh, yeah. Stanley Kubrick. He doesn't want his face not to see. So he took this picture when he was, he was young, like a teenager. He was into photography. He was into images like me. And he took this picture of these two, of these couple making out on, a, on the fire escape. So I saw that picture today because I love black and white photos. Those are my favorite. Black and white photos are my favorite. And uh, that's like I'm into Tubi now. Tubi, that free platform. Oh, yeah. I love that they station. Have, they have Naked City. Movie. They have Naked City. And that's from the 50s. And that's New York, gritty New York, black and white. And I, I get to watch, uh, turn my granddaughter on uh, every Saturday. We watch uh, uh, Batman. The 1960s Batman. Adam Westbert Ward. That's my favorite. <laughs> so yeah. campy. Yeah, it's so campy. Because the Batman now, it does too serious. It's too dark. Yeah. Yeah, it too Give dark. me the Riddler. Riddle me this. Frank <laughs> <laughs> Gorshin. Look at the actors. Cesar Romero. He forgets. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to shave his mustache. He refuses to shave it. Because that was the first. And then my granddaughter. Episode one. She says. Why doesn't Robin have any pants on? I never <laughs> thought of that. I never, that's genius. I never thought of that. You know I never thought of it. And I've watched those shows, <laughs> mo those that whole series multiple times. I never even thought of it once. <laughs> she she <laughs> was five funny. years old. That's what she says to me. Why doesn't he wear, why is he wearing no pants, Grandpa? And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> One of my favorite stories. Are you a Bruce Lee fan? Sure, sure, sure. Well, you know, like uh, he was in obviously the Green Hornet. He played Cato, so they wanted to get better ratings for the Green Hornet. 
and they put him, Cato, and uh, the Green Hornet fighting Batman Robin. Yeah. So in the Bruce Lee said, if Robin's going to beat me, I'm walking off the show right now. There's no way Robin's <laughs> going to kick my ass. So they they made it a draw just to make everybody happy. Like So he, <laughs> Bruce Lee said, there's no way I'm losing to this guy right here. <laughs> He's such a weird character, but they really had. I got to meet Adam West. Yeah, me too. Uh, at a... Uh, uh, one of those signings, I think. Uh, I forgot which one I did. I, it was right across the street from Madison Square Garden. Okay. It was in a hotel. I got arrested at once. And, I, <laughs> and it was, I was the wrong guy. I just had the face. I looked. There was a robbery at the at the hotel. It was the Sheridan. Right? Is that the, the one right across the street from the Madison Square Garden? I, I know where the it is. The hotel where they threw the spy out the window, where they filled him with LSD. And they threw him out the window, the, the pen, the pen plaza, no, the pen. Anyway, that hotel. I just happened to be there, and there was a robbery there, oh. and uh, I was with my friend Vito, and I don't know what we were doing, Vito, and uh, we were doing something, but we weren't robbing nothing, and uh, there was some kind of robbery, and. They snatched us up, and I had to go to the precinct. Was handcuffed, and I had just picked up a lid. Back then, we called them lids, like an ounce of pot. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they realized I wasn't the guy, then they were letting me go. I, you know, they were letting me go after they took the pot off me too. And I was like, "Can I get my pot back?" They were like, "Get out of here! <laughs> <laughs> Can I get my weed back, bro?" <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll gladly but, take my weed and leave. Okay. Thank yeah, you. but then uh, uh, I hadn't been a. Uh, so I worked in the 34th Street area. When I worked with Division of Aid Services, uh, Hell's Kitchen was my beat. Mm -hmm. And um, so I know that, that area very, very well. At least I thought I did. So the last couple of years, I've been in Florida and, I, and the virus, so, and I kept away from everybody. So about a month ago, I went on my first date in a long, long time. And we met at uh, the AMC Theater on 42nd Street, on 40 Deuce. And um, uh, my daughter got me on the LIRR. And when I got off the train, I did not recognize New York. Yeah. This was my city. I did not, it was all, I got off the LIRR and it was all plywood. All, it was like a tunnel of plywood, all the way up the escalator, all the way. And I, I knew that if I followed, the little signs from Madison Square Garden, I would be good. So I said, I had to go to Chase because I haven't had cash in a long time because I just use my card all the time. But I needed some cash because I'm going on a date. So I'm looking for Chase. I know Chase is right there, Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I had to go through this myriad of things. So I'm building up my stamina again because I have been very sick for a long time. And uh, I'm getting a little tired walking, and this guy, this construction guy, because it's all plywood, they're just building shit all over. He pops up with a sign that says stop, big stop sign. And so apparently he's used to getting cursed out <laughs> because, you know, everybody behind me has to stop. And I go, oh, thank God, I needed a rest. And he started laughing. <laughs> so then I'm walking up Broadway uh, up to 40 Deuce, and there's weed stores. There's weed. There was always weed in that area. Because when I was in the record, now it's legal. Over there, but now it's legal. They have Weed World. Guys selling weed out there. I mean, I, I love my weed. I mean, I, that's it. I don't drink anymore. I have my glass of wine. But 
I'm a Rasta Rican, okay? I love my weed. And uh, no stems, no seeds that you don't need. I'm Google Golden. But the weed is so much better today than what we used to smoke. I call that AstroTurf now, man. But <laughs> this shit is really good stuff now. But uh, yeah, I, I was just, I didn't even recognize there's so much new buildings going on. I just, so on the way back, after I had a successful date, it was just, we just had the most wonderful time. And I didn't know when we went in the movie that you had to use the computer to get a ticket. Yes. And then you have to use the computer where you want to sit. Yeah. So we messed up the time. So I said, well, let's go out to eat. So I took her to the, to the Havana Central on 46th Street in Broadway. We had some Cuban food. And then we went to the movie Across the Street, which is, I think, the Lowe's. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so she knew she had been going to the movie, so she did everything. And we had to pick the seats. And then we go in there. And uh, it was the uh, the guy, Marky Mark. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Mark Wahlberg. But we'll Mark on. Wahlberg. Yeah, I, and, know, uh, I didn't see that one, but was it any so good? Very, very beefy. You know, he's a boxer. So, he's, yeah. so I said, oh, that's Oh, Father Stu. Father Stu. So she goes, so I go, oh, that's why she picked it. But when we went in there, after we picked the seats, there was nobody in the whole theater. We had the whole theater by ourselves, the whole theater. So I was like, why did we pick seats? So the movie is a lot of beefcake, a lot of beefcake, but because he's a boxer and then he's, uh, he fights a Spanish girl who's religious, you know, one of those movies. And yeah. then, uh, uh, then he makes love to her and then uh, she, she falls in love with him, but then he decides to be a priest. So she's all pissed with that. And then uh, he's, he's a, he becomes a priest. So he goes from a, a boxing bad guy, he becomes a priest. And that crazy guy, the, the actor, the one that said, uh, do you really want to jump? <laughs> I, know, I, I know who you're talking about. I can't think of it because I didn't see that movie, but I he know. He was great at that. Yeah. He, he's in the movie. He's really, really good. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's one of my favorite lines. Do you really want to jump? But uh, he goes, uh, so uh, he, uh, Anyway, so then Marky Mark, then all of a sudden he has like Lou Gehrig's disease, you know? Yeah. So uh, I'm an artist. I'm a sensitive guy. So she's sitting there with me. And then a tear comes out. And she goes, I really like you. You're so sensitive. And I just, <laughs> he's from my old zip code in the Bronx, you know? So yeah. I, I know she's tough. Another Puerto Rican chick. <laughs> but um, Well, it's funny. You mentioned that not recognizing New York anymore. Do you know John Joseph? He was at the Warriors. Yeah, I know John Joseph. Yeah. yeah that guy's guy an incredible guy. He emceed a uh, he emceed an event that I was in. And yeah, we got Coney Island. No, it wasn't in Coney Island. It was at a club in the Lower East Side. It was it was wintertime. Okay. And uh, he's one he's the guy's a superman, isn't he? He's incredible. Oh, yeah. He's gonna be on the show Magnum. soon. Yeah, Crow Magnet. He's gonna be on the show soon. But I met him first at, at the Warriors, in Coney Island. But then the reason I'm bringing him up was because he does a New York walking tour of the Lower East Side. And he, he talks about like the old days in the 70s and 80s, what New York was like back then compared to what it's like now. And it was exactly what you're saying right now. We went to areas where they filmed Taxi Driver. And then he he's just like you. He has so many stories. And he's hilarious, just like he's you. Hilarious. We, we spoke one time all night because uh, it was him and David Harris and I and my daughter backstage. And uh, I got to 
really respect that. One of the toughest white guys I ever met in my life. I mean, that guy does super marathon shits, man. He can ride a bike for 25 miles, run Yard for man. 200 miles, uh, uh, swim another 25 miles. He's one of the incredible. And he wrote that book. Uh, uh, Two books, PMA, The PMA Effect. He also wrote The um, Evolution of a Cro-Magnon. And he also wrote a book. Uh, uh, Meat is for Pussies. Meat is for Pussies. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, we hit it off big time. Okay. We got along. Like, I got some pictures with me and him somewhere. Yeah. yeah. No, so do I. And I cannot wait. He's, to on, my fa- he's on my Facebook list. Okay. My friends list. Yeah. yeah. John but, no, but going through that walking tour, I just did that two weeks ago. And it was, it was so interesting seeing all the areas. There are now delis used to be punk clubs where he performed and then he has so many stories about all the things that he's done in his life which i mean were all the bad things that happened to him he turned out great I mean, he was a monk for a while he was Hari krishna he does the whole plant plant-based diet he's all about that so yeah i i, I have a lot of respect for him and I, of course i love <laughs> chromags chromags are great yeah we gotta hang out some some more we gotta hang out yeah john joseph I got to hang out with him. We got to communicate for a while. He's a good brother. He's a really good dude. He knows what time it is. Yes, he does. Time yep. It is. Yep. Well, I want to get back to what we're what, what your movies because I said I watched Vampires. I I was looking for Orchard Beach. I couldn't find that, but there's one I was looking for, and I know that you won an award for. It's called High and Tight. Let's oh, that's my that favorite. One. You don't have that one? No, I couldn't find it. I just I'll send it right now. Yeah, please do. No, go to go to uh, Vimeo. It's on Vimeo. Oh, Vimeo. Okay, because I thought it was on Prime Video. It was on Prime Video for two and a half years, and then they took it off. I was so disappointed too, because I went to show somebody and they took it off. Yeah, I, I got I it. My, when I was doing my research, I said I want to see this movie because I know how much you love it. It's only about fifteen minutes long, and you wanted to work. I got to yeah. really do some acting there. I really got to do some acting there because it's about. Um, it's about uh, I'm a I'm a neighborhood barber. Actually, they sent the script to Jazz, and Jazz said, "Dad, you could do this." And when I read it, I play an old Spanish guy. <laughs> Stretch, all right. I guess. <laughs> and uh, but it was a a barber who has been in the neighborhood a long time, Mr. Marquez, and uh, his son is supposed to take over the uh, business. However, my son uh, gets involved with an older woman and the husband catches them in bed together and he kills both of them. He happens to be a state trooper. So he disappears for seven years and I have the wanted poster on my, uh, on the mirror and where my son was going to take over that chair is dressed in black. So fast forward seven, eight years, he has this, uh, this guilt thing and he hasn't shaved and he hasn't cut his hair in, in, in that time. And he listens to self-help tapes and he's drinking that syrup that the people like to drink that syrup to get high and nasty shit. But, um, so, uh, he starts, uh, stalking me and he could see me. It was done in a real, uh, barbershop too. And I had, I had a, I had a, a stunt man, <laughs> to do the uh, cutting because the hair was nasty. I didn't want to touch it. And I didn't know what I was doing. You know, they used the real barber's hands, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, his conscience gets to him. And eventually he, he comes into the barbershop 
And however, there's a cop there that he didn't see. So he freezes and he says, uh, what time do I close? And I told him the time. And then he comes back when there's nobody there. And it's just him and I alone. And I'm upset because I was closing. And we sit him down and uh, he he's talks and I'm talking. And I have an attitude and I'm cutting his hair. And the way he's talking is, is hitting me a certain way. And it's very dramatic. And as the more hair goes off, and then I shave his beard, and then I'm looking at the, uh, I, I'm looking at it, and I, and I and then I have the knife on his throat, and then I'm looking at it, and then I realize he's the one that killed my son, and I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at it, and he goes, do it, do it, do it, and then you got to see the ending. I but, can't uh, wait. Yeah, please yeah. send that to me. Please yeah, let me see. That's uh, that one I was pretty proud of, because um, you won an I got award to in Canada. Act. Right. Yeah, I won uh, Best Supporting Actor in Canada. Congratulations. <laughs> and I had it. I, I, I broke it, and then uh, somebody fixed it for me. But, um, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that was a good one. Because I, I worked with uh, Seth Abrams, and he, come, he came from the Yiddish theater. Okay. And Seth has, uh, like this, with John Joseph, as a matter of fact, huh. like this. And he used to be one of those marathon guys too yeah um, from the yiddish theater and uh he had a series of strokes so seth um he he has uh when he talks you could just you know he had a bunch of strokes you know so it was interesting working with him as an actor because he's really good i mean he's real you got to be on your toes to work with him but uh we hit it off so well um well, I definitely I mean, look we're forward still to seeing touch. it. Let me see. I have it right here. Here we go. I'm going to send it to you right now. All right. Thank you. There's another movie I was looking for. I heard you talking about this. I couldn't find it anywhere. You called it, you said it was called The Dysfunctional Mob. And it was. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, dysfunctional Mob. Okay. That's. Hi. 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 The Dysfunctional Mob. Oh, my God. Um, I couldn't find that anywhere. I wanted to yeah. say it because you said the director, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he did not want any swearing on the movie. And yeah, he's super Italian, and he, he didn't funny. want any swearing in the movie. And um, yeah, we went, I'm looking at the high and tight. We won so many awards. We won a lot of, um, you know, those things they put on the billboard, but um, yeah. on the poster. But uh, yeah, this, is, this guy, oh my God. Luis Marino. Now, Luis Marino is somebody that, due to my amazing skills of being able to get along with almost anyone, um, keeps me still talking to this guy because he just pisses off everybody he talks to. But his main claim to fame, he gets to do um, uh, sign-ins because he was the baby in The Godfather. Ah, Okay. All right, he was the baby in The Godfather. He's from the Low East Side. Uh, he's just a loud, rambunctious kind of guy. If you say martial arts, he's the best. If you say whatever, he's been in it. I know he was in the funeral business for a long time. Uh, uh, he has a lot of friends, but he just pisses actors off. And uh, he's very special in my life. But we did a thing called Dysfunctional Mob. And, uh, you know, he has some really good actors in it. There's a guy named Doug 
who who does impersonations he's really really good he looks just like the godfather he looks he looks like anybody he wants to be he's like one of those guys yeah and um he's a chameleon so the lewis asked me to be in his film so i do it and he knows that when i do things i do it really well but i have i'm a bit of a diva and there's certain things especially if you're not paying me right that you have to do for me to be in your film and one of them if you don't do it i'm not gonna do it is transportation you got to pick me up and you got to bring me home because my ass is too old. My heart is too weak to be working on the subways like I did. In fact, that was one of the main reasons I retired at the end was because I was living in Queens, Middle Village, and I was working in Brooklyn, which was my last uh, uh, couple of years in this. I took this job so that I wouldn't have client contact anymore. But um, I was taking six buses and I mean, six subways and two buses a day. I mean, it eventually gets to you, you know? Oh, yeah. So, no, I didn't do it. But uh, those are the only, basically, you don't have to feed me because I don't really eat. You don't have to give me alcohol because I don't drink. And, you know, I'll take a smoke a joint or something like that and have a pizza with the cast or something. But mm -hmm. you got to make sure I get home because when I was living in Middle Village, it, I was on the last stop of the M train. And then I had to take a... Uh, uh, a bus and you know at queens at night those buses don't run so as much as i'm being a diva they like to say i'm not going to going to spend all night trying to get home because i've done that where i volunteer or even even if i'm doing a paid gig and i and i can't get home it's like impossible to get home at night sometimes if you live in queens so i just said i'm never going to do that again you know the least you can do if you're not paying me is exactly. get me a ride you it's know? gonna cost more to pay you to be in the movie than to get you transportation. <laughs> exactly. So go with the transportation. Like you said, sure. you're not even asking for drinks or food. Just get me home and get me there. Yeah, and then I had, you know, I had those problems with my heart. You know, the first time with the stent. Yeah. Um, that wasn't so bad, but you know, it was a, it was a, it was a pulling of the coat because um, I bought pateles is a traditional. Uh, uh, Puerto Rican, Caribbean food, where it's like, you know, it's a food that you buy, you eat it on the holidays. So I had two, I had a dozen in this hand and a dozen in this hand frozen. And I was walking up a hill and I just couldn't make it. So my friend, David Goody, uh, who goes to me to most of my gigs, retired cop, he convinced me to go to the hospital. I went to, I didn't go to the hospital. And then I wound up calling the ambulance and I wound up getting a stent. So, I was supposed to stop smoking, but I've been smoking since I was like 12 years old. So and I was smoking menthol cigarettes, cools, wow. which you can't even buy anymore. So um, I, 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 I stopped smoking for a week. <laughs> I started smoking again. So the second time I got this, that I, it was really bad. It, I, I bled out and... Uh, Took me six months to recover, and the reason why I finally quit—it's been two years since I smoked a cigarette. I smoked menthols for fifty years, wow, and it ruined my heart. And um, I, the reason why I stopped wasn't so much my heart and my lungs, was when I woke up, my balls and and my my dick was like this, blown up because all the blood, all the blood had to go somewhere because they had to use a clamp. Yeah, they were going to here. It was like I could see them, but I was you know. <laughs> I was under, and when I woke up, I was just, I said, no, I'm never going to. Yeah. So, 
that's it. I gave up my cool cigarettes. But uh, you know, now I want to live. Now I'm going to the uh, senior centers and exercising. And uh, those two that the year and a half that I spent in Florida, I was going swimming. But then my I was restricted. I didn't like the uh, as a city worker, retired civil servant. Um, uh, I had great insurance, medical insurance. You, you, the pay sucks, but the benefits are great. Yeah. But um, which, as you get older, you realize that's more. Very that's important. more important. Yeah. That's more important because yeah. my medication. Yeah. I take a lot of medication, and it's uh, it's uh, I, my union pays for it, so it's a good deal. Twenty dollars for ninety day supplies. Everything is good. But in Florida, and I found out that my my insurance is great in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Uh, but in Florida, it's a whole other beast. And um, I didn't like the medical care I was getting there. And uh, I got to the point where they restricted my uh, exercising. And there's not much you could do when it's so fucking hot. So I would go to the pool every day. But then I was having problems breathing. I came back home and my daughter took me to a cardiologist here because I'm affiliated with NYU. And they said I was taking too much of one medication and they gave me a you told me got rid of it, and now I'm back. I feel much better. So Good. New York is where I belong. <laughs> right, well, I'm happy. I'm happy you're you're back. Better than I'm that. still staying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I want to talk about two of the latest, maybe the most recent movies. Unless I have this wrong, one of them is called The Zoo Crew Two. That sounds like a fun movie. Where I just want to tell my audience, my viewers, what it's about. So the child actor ditches his career to become a street gang leader after watching the movie, The Warriors. Yeah. That sounds he's like a, a fun movie. Michael Demetrius, he's a Broadway actor. He did uh, Runaways for a bunch of times. He's done a, a million things. Uh, and he's hired, he, he has me and a couple of the Warriors under contract. And right, you know, what most things happen, um, he, he wants to do that. It's supposed to be directed by Fox, uh, 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 wait, Tom Wait. Okay. Who's going to be at this thing on June uh, June second? Also, his band is going to be there. But um, he was supposed to direct it, and uh, like a lot of other projects, that uh, the the vi the virus messed things up, and uh, they're looking for funding. Wow. Um, but he recently had an accident. I know his daughter just graduated from college. She's such a sweetheart. But uh, yeah, I'm under contract with him if if something happens with that the zoo crew too. Damn, you know everything, man. Damn, <laughs> done my research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I was thinking. I I know a lot of people that do this, do a Kickstarter or something like that, where they people will put money in and they well, yeah, have that, a producer credit. Yeah, that's what he does. Yeah. Oh, he's doing it. Okay. Yeah, I, I will doing. gladly put money in for that. I Let me ask you something. Where's this going to be shown? Or who's going to see this? YouTube. I have my YouTube oh, oh, okay. You too. Okay. Because yep. I've done a podcast with, uh, uh, what's his name? The wrestler. He's a big. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. I forgot what his name is. I know exactly who you're talking about. Because uh, I've heard podcasts with him on um, different guests that I like on his show. I cannot think of his name, though. Y2K2. Y2K. Yeah. 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 I can't think of his name, but I, I know exactly who you mean. He's a. Uh, he has a great podcast, but yeah, this is going to be on YouTube and uh, 
hopefully when it comes out, I'll let you know. We can spread the word and, and get as many people. Just put it on. It. Put it. Put it on uh, your. You have a new platform, Orphan Nation. You have something yes. you want to. You can. You go on Orphan Nation. This is going yeah. on the Rich Share YouTube. What I hate is when two two members get into a fight. Oh my God. You know, like some kind of, that's why I avoid all kind of political shit. But sometimes members get into it and then they inbox me and they go, Apache, how could you have this guy on and stuff like that? But, you know, my thing is everybody has an opinion if they can express it fine. If it bothers you, don't read it. Leave them alone. Change the channel. That's all. That's all. I'm not going to get upset about that. Yeah. Once, I remember when, um, when Trump was in, uh, oh my God, he he was in Puerto Rico. We had the earthquake and all that stuff. And oh some yeah, said some horrible things. And some people said, "Well, why, Patchy? Why didn't jump on it? It's not worth it. It's gonna be gonna be forgotten in a minute." And um, if you, I don't like banning people. I don't. I don't like uh, censoring people. I, I really don't. I mean, you could say things I really don't like, but I, you know. You, you're exposing yourself there. That doesn't mean I have to like, I think I would give you too much attention if I did that. You know, I just yes. like, leave you go, let it go. No, see, I agree with you. And you know what I love? I, I hate when people say, oh, I'm all about free speech. But if it's something I don't like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> no, that's what free speech is all about. Exactly. They, everybody should be able, And there's a documentary on the ACLU. And there was a time where they fought for the Nazis to have their own rally. And the guy from the head of the ACLU at the time said, I don't support the Nazis, but I support their right to have a talk about what they want to. He goes, I don't agree with anything, but there was, there was a whole documentary just about that. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I always say, I'm not going to change your mind. You're not going to change my mind. Why do we even have to go back and forth? I have my opinion. You have your opinion. We have so many other things in common. Why do we have to keep going back and forth? But I know people now it's to the point where you don't agree with me. I hope you die. I know. I censor you. Yeah. That whole that whole uh, Will Smith thing, that was, I could not believe that. That was really weird. First, I thought it was a joke. Me, I mean, then, yeah. yeah. But you know what's funny? You could see, I saw that there was, uh, Bill Maher was doing a great thing on that. He has a segment called, it's a joke, stupid. So you had that whole segment in slow motion, and you see Will Smith laughing. Then he looks over in slow motion. You see Jada roll her eyes. Then all of a sudden he gets up. It was he like Bill Maher said. You actually see this. You see Will Smith get canceled in real time. <laughs> he yeah. Looked at his wife. His wife said, "I don't. I don't think. What do you laugh at? That's not funny." Then he gets up there and slaps him. It was weird. I thought it was a. I. I really. For maybe a week, I said, this has to be a joke. I was waiting for it to uh, unroll. And I'm like, no, maybe it really was. Chris Rock handled himself very well. I was surprised at that. Oh, yeah. He's a, he, you know, I heard he's hosting the Academy Awards again next year. So <laughs> that, <laughs> meanwhile, Will is like, oh, my God. He's banned for 10 years. Which, best, what I think, if, you want, if you don't like an act, you just don't pay to go see it. That's all. That's all. Some people like it. Go see it. I mean, uh, I, I, this. The the generate the time period in my life now is just so weird compared to growing up um, that that whole sixties seventies uh, generation and then compared to now everything's so strict and so yeah. watch what you're saying watch what you're doing uh, as far as uh, violence I, I think it's always been violent and uh, you know. Uh, the, New York growing up, we used to have me growing up, 2,000 murders a year wasn't uh, uh, 
such so far fetched. I mean, I'm just so used to the violence that uh, that I'm numb to it. I'm just numb to it. I've seen so much of it. The only them, the only difference now is that I have grandchildren, and I uh, worry about them. But um, you, the only thing you can do is just prepare your kids uh, for the world as best you can, and they're gonna oh, go oh, for their own. No, I, I want to say his name is Jericho. That's the wrestler. It just came to me. Chris Jericho. Jericho. Yeah. That's what, yeah. But what I wanted to say was the prop, the difference in. Like you said, there was probably more violence or just as much violence. But the difference is back then we didn't have 24-7 news cycles. We didn't have social media posting it over and over again. Exactly. So seeing this, thinking that, oh, this is it's the worst it's ever been. Actually, I don't think it is. And I think the reason everybody's so sensitive now, and this is a theory that somebody came up with, and I agree with it, that kids have it so easy to say it's the easiest life has ever been and now they have nothing to revolt against so they have to rebel against something so they're online i hate this i hate that and really your life is too good and that's why you're starting all these fights with your the keyboard warrior this is disgusting i want that and then now everything is banned or canceled as you said if you said something 10 years ago like a meme you put up 10 years ago somebody's gonna come up and say i don't like that i don't want him to work again and i think that's horrible I, just, yeah. I know my, my uh, well, you know, in terms of violence, I grew up in a violent time. I remember uh, I didn't start school till second grade. Nobody brought me to school until second grade. And my first day I ran away. But um, I remember hiding under our desk with airway drills, you know, living under the threat. Oh, yeah. when, we had, when we had the first blackout in 1965, November 9th, I remember I was doing my fifth grade homework and I was, uh, my mother was cooking and uh, I thought the lights went out. I thought it was, right away it was the Russians. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Yeah. But my, my life uh, totally changed in 9, November 22nd, 1963, when my uh, teachers were crying and sent us home and said the president was shot. That, that, um, didn't say he was dead, but say he was shot. That changed uh, everything. I became a, a news junkie then. Yeah. Uh, I was I was stuck to the TV. I remember seeing at my friend Ephraim's house when Jack Ruby killed uh, uh, Oswald. I saw it live just when it happened. Wow. And uh, then uh, Robert Kennedy and then uh, Martin Luther King in 68. And, you know, that's that's my growing up with. That's when I was growing up. So... Violence is not new to me at all. And people say it's worse now. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I don't I think don't so. Know. Well, even I, with th the I think what you say with all the cable outlets and all this stuff, because you have to wait 24 hours. You have to wait for the newspaper. You couldn't wait to get the newspaper, you know, and uh, you only had your local news, you know, and uh, yeah. you didn't have CNN. You didn't have, you only had like four stations, you know. And radio, I loved radio. I remember listening to Ali fight Patterson on radio, you know, listening to fights on the radio. I still like, now they call them podcasts, but before they were stories, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And even yeah. before that, they were the serials. Yeah, I was a big, I, I was a big Imus fan. Oh, yeah. I remember Imus, uh, um, no matter what they said about him, the guy was entertaining and, uh, that would be, I would listen to, that would be my thing in the morning and going to work. I would listen to, oh, yeah. first I would listen to 10, 10 wins, get a quick news thing. And then while I'm on the toilet, listening to I miss. And then when I'm in, uh, walking up to catch the bus, I put WBLS on or uh, kiss or something on. That would be my, I, I love radio. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I actually had a job in radio for a very short time years ago. Uh, it was 92. I, w- I worked in radio from 92 and 97. And at that time, it was, it was funny because people said, you got into radio at the wrong time. It's not funny anymore. At that time, it was all these bigger companies like Affinity Broadcasting were buying out smaller stations. Now it's the worst it's ever been because now it's streaming, Pandora, Spotify, radio stations are becoming obsolete. And it's just, I know, I saw a yeah, friend. DJs, DJs. Yeah, yes, it's, exactly. all, it's all automated push yeah. button remote control synthetics genetics command your soul yeah 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 so it's those just, djs frankie crocker djs you can remember oh, the yeah, good guys wmca the good guys yeah i i had such a fun time in radio but it was more of a hobby because i wasn't making any money off of it and i said there was no stability it's even worse than the music business and acting where there was just no the same thing happened to me what happened to you with the record business i came in one day and I said all right they, we sold the station. You got to go. That happened twice to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I definitely understand that. I know that feeling. Yeah. I want to talk yeah. about another movie. Let's get back to the movies because I mentioned uh, the Zoo Crew too. There's another one that says The Duke of New York and New Go City. That's that, about COVID. Is that another yeah, one? That's also uh, uh, my man, Eric, who did uh, Van Pikers. That's Eric. And I have a very, very small part because of the loyalty he has because he he felt he feels like I'm one of the first people who backed him up, you know, when he did that thing and sent it to me on Facebook, and then I got involved with the Vampire series. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that okay, because that scene with Chichi I did at the Freak Club, uh, the Freak Bar in, in Coney Island, um, that will never be seen <laughs> because uh, the cameraman got mad. But those are the independent films, but. I think he did that film. It was it's an anti-Asian film in terms of stop the anti-Asian hate, but he still gave me a part. I was in Florida, and he sent me the some lines he made uh, just to to have a what I felt about it. So I did it in the pool. I had my girlfriend at the time film me as I'm in the pool saying the lines. So he just and then I sent it to him, and then he put it in. But I never saw it because I wasn't in New York at the time. But yeah, I. Uh, he, Eric is uh, still doing it. He's still making these independent films. I call it, um, I know somebody's going to steal this from me. Uh, I call it Hollywood instead of Hollywood. It's Hollywood films, you know. So that's a word I made up for it. It's like the word orphanet. You know, yeah. I want it to be more inclusive, you know. So I came up with orphanet. I don't even know if that's a real word, but uh, my we'll friend David made some T-shirts uh, and... Uh, made some orphan t-shirts and put orphanet on the side and you know people wanted it you know so you have to to start copywriting this stuff yeah i I have to learn how to do that but uh the whole orphan thing i've made it into something that you know people want to be a part of it it makes me feel good you know i I think paul would have loved it if paul would have lived yeah uh you know, because they always show Paul. I, I, my part is so small. Every time when I go to these things and see it, I go, damn, this part is so small. But then people want to talk to me afterwards, you know. I I remember um, people said I should have been the leader of the – taking just disregarding the film, just making their film up, saying I should have been the leader of the orphans. No, Paul, who was the leader of the orphans, you know. That was his part, and he did a damn good job. No, he, he was could, great. But you have such dogs. a memorable scene, though. You have such a memorable part. Like, even just that one line. Let me show you this. Let me show you this. Let me take you into my room. All uh, right, let's see it. 
Uh, I'm going to show you <laughs> what my fans send me. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, I just am so grateful. I mean, let me see. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad they have these meet and greets now, and I'm so glad they have all these autographs. This is by one of the best graffiti underground ah, graffiti artists. I love it. He's done that for me. And um, yeah, I get all these things that are made for. Let me see. I got. Uh, let me see. These little action figures. Let me see. Oh, let's see. That they make them. Yep. Oh, yeah, there it is. I love it. Oh, I need to get one of mine. I need to get one of those. Fingers. I mean, it's, it's, oh, yeah, I got to put my thing out. It's great when uh, these big fancy companies make them. Yeah. But when your fans make them for you. I mean, look at that. That is great. Ah, oh, I definitely this want one of those. On steroids. But look at that. Look at that. It's so good. This one here. This one here has my tattoo. He just fell on the floor. This one here has my tattoo. Oh my god! Look at that. That is great. It's a guy out of England sent them to me. I was just—I mean, that's really nice, you know. I just had a small apartment. They think of me to do that and my stance. This one is one of my favorites. This one—I had to take it for my grandson because he was going to lose it. What's <laughs> up? It's a, it's a Lego. <laughs> that is and it has, great. It has the newspaper that I'm holding too, and the and the thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't make these things up. You know, it's just the fans make them, and that and that's such an honor. I, it's like, damn, why would you take, why would you take the time to do that? You know, so. I, I'm I'm very appreciative of it, and I call them and I thank them and. It's it's just something to be part of. Oh yeah, definitely. So little things, and then it has my badge. I love you're, my little badges. <laughs> you are part of pop culture history. Oh, his. Uh, let me see if you can see. That's gold. That's yep. platinum. I see that's that. UK platinum. That's uh, Colonel Abrams trap. That's UK platinum. And then people. I don't make these, but look, it's stickers they made of me. Yep. And they send it to me, and I'm so grateful. I'm like, thank you so much. You took the time to do that? Yeah. So I'm not jaded. You know, like no, the, the Warriors, yeah. they get big companies to do their images, but I get big fans. <laughs> well, I, th I think that would actually mean more to me. Yeah. Having the fans make that than it would be some company that puts it out who probably – company has no clue who you are but the fans are making it because they love you they love the movie you had such an impact on their life so it would mean more to me with the fans making these dolls or these actually look this is this is let me see this is an artist named clash that you oh yeah look at that love that the orphans he puts yep, my face great. on it yep i mean it's he's really really good let me see he's this this was one of my favorites. This is not a, an orphan thing, but this is another one of his. Uh, What's it? Cheech and Chung. Oh yeah, up in smoke. <laughs> it's really good. I love Cheech and Chung. And then this one. Ah, oh, that's great. So, yep. so you know, so I'm I'm pretty lucky. You are. 
to 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 do this and um i'm getting tired of talking now <laughs> all right well bro i only have a couple more things to talk about we've only been talking for three hours this has been <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. yeah well let we'll, we'll end with the warriors because we oh here's the last one somebody sent me this one. Oh, that is great did you have you have the best fans i and do I, have the best fans yep. and i'm so glad as i mentioned i'm glad that your daughter helped you with this i'm glad that deborah van valkenberg got you introduced you to the meet and greets i was just looking to see if we had an open bottle of wine no <laughs> <laughs> like if this is going to be any bit longer i'm going to start drinking <laughs> 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 uh, then I'll start going. I started out as a child, and then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to stick with the Warriors because everybody thinks, including myself, that you have a crowbar in your hand, but it's not a crowbar. What is it? Well, I ran a contest one, and nobody got it. But back in uh, let me see, '78 when we filmed, there was a lot of abandoned buildings all over the place. So for some reason, when it came time to rain on the Warriors, um, uh, they gave me a counterweight from the old box toilets. They were the water, to they were boxes and you pulled the chain like this. So it was a counterweight. So that's what I'm holding. It was pretty disgusting, but that's what I was holding. And I don't know why they gave me that, but people think, uh, I have somebody in the Philippines made a statue of me. It's really hot. It's really hot. But uh, when I was in Florida, this girl knocked it over. So the leg got broken. So I sent it to my friend who got it made for me, David. And uh, I thought he was just going to crazy glue it, but he sent it back to the Philippines to get it repaired. So now I'm waiting for it to come. But uh, yeah, yeah. All right. So another thing about the Warriors, and we'll end with this because I know it's getting late and I have to get up for work myself. But you have an interesting story with the explosion of the car. Yeah. All right. So. So. All right. So um, I'm thinking, uh, how much am I going to be in this film? Right. So I see the stuntman, which uh, was a short guy. Um, which is actually who was actually Conrad, uh, Conrad, who's the guy in the skates with the punks. Yeah, Conrad Sheehan. Yeah, he's a great guy, Conrad. He works with uh, prisoners and he has a book out on Taoism, T A O I S M. Great mm -hmm. guy, really great guy. He keeps in touch with me still. And uh, even though we didn't have no scenes together, and he had a bunch of padding on, but I didn't know who he was at the time. And, uh, he was close to the car that was going to blow up. So I knew what car was going to blow up. So I wanted to make sure I was seen in the movie. I didn't know if I was going to get cut out or how much you're going to be in the movie. So he was close to the car. So I got close to the car. So while we're waiting for this thing to blow, they had like some kind of glue on the car and some kind of starter that we was waiting for it to blow. And that's where we were doing all the improv and shit. Nah, we're going to get you warriors. Fuck you warriors, blah, blah, blah. So that's where we're going to rain on you warriors. It was born. So I was close to the car, and when it blew up, it was a real explosion. I mean, it was, it, I, you know, for some reason, I thought it was going to be a Hollywood explosion or some shit like that. <laughs> and I was absolutely fearless back then. I didn't give a shit about it. I'd fight anybody. I'd do anything. I was absolutely crazy then. But um, 
You wanted to be in the scene as well. You wanted to be. I wanted to be seen in the movie. I wanted to be in the movie. And when that thing blew up, some people ran, some people froze. My reaction was to run and laugh because I could see the glass coming down on people, and I was laughing hysterically. Just that, I just laugh when I'm in trouble. I laugh when I'm I'm sad. Laughing is a an escape thing for me. So. Then the guy came out, somebody named Eddie DeTorch came out and said, sorry, guys, they forgot to take out the windshield. So that's oh. where all the glass was. Oh, man. So then the next two times, they blew up two more cars. And I'm sure they took the first one because the next two times, I was like, we're going to rain on you, warriors. They're going to rain on you, not me. <laughs> okay. Well, it's raining on the warriors. I'll be over here. I'm over there. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Fuck you, warriors. <laughs> you know what? You know what we have to do? Me, you, John, Joseph have to hang out sometime. Sure, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do as long as I have, tra- I've, I've got transportation. I got, I, I learned how to. Uh, uh, I'm fortunate now that I don't really go to a lot of places, but I, I intend to. But when I do, I'm Uber. <laughs> no, I'm the same way too. Uber and Lyft. I yeah, love those two things. I, I love Uber. I love Uber. Yeah. I figured out it costs uh, forty dollars to get my girlfriend here from the Bronx, and that's all I need to know. For her, cause, uh, <laughs> you know, Queens is like another another country. Oh yeah, forty dollars from uh, co-op city to here is not a bad deal. No, not bad at all. Because I'm, I'm close to the Whitestone Bridge. That's what it is. Well, Patchy. Thank you very much for being on the show. It was great talking to you. I could talk to you probably for another three hours. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's go to a bar. Like I was talking to that guy. Uh, okay, this is a quick story. At uh, Thrill at Thriller, right? So they had the cast of uh, Mash. I got to have dinner with uh, the greatest transvestite of all time, Jamie Farr. Jamie Farr, eighty-eight years old, still sharp as a tack, funny as hell, and. Um, uh back to the future the mcfly guy what's his name mcfly oh well marty mcfly was uh that was michael j fox right but i'm trying to think who was well christopher lloyd was there yeah you're talking about yeah christopher no, lloyd, he played no, doc no doc was okay but he, he i didn't hang out with him after oh. uh the guy that he says mcfly I forgot who he was oh yeah i haven't seen the movie in your i know you're talking because i did meet some i met leah thompson i met christopher lloyd and I'm, I can't think of who you're talking about, but I know I know the character. But yeah, so you hung out with him. But anyway, so, so I'm at the bar. So I don't drink during the whole event. I don't really eat during the whole event until I know everything is over and I can relax. So I had a drink and I'm at the bar and my phone goes off. And when I get text messages, I have a duck. And my duck goes quack, quack, quack. And so he heard the duck go quack, quack, quack. So he says, uh, I used to have a duck go quack, quack, quack uh, when I got my Texas. And I go, well, I have mine because I've always been a Groucho Marx fan. Yes. And he goes, I played Groucho Marx for eight years. So his wife, who's in the uh, Harry Potter series as a witch, she goes, I hate it when he played uh, Harry Potter because, uh, I mean, when, when he played groucho because groucho was mean so <laughs> that just told me that he took his character home with him but it is, <laughs> you know 
know, you got to learn to cut up the character, but that was so funny because of my duck started a conversation. That's so funny. Talk about comedy and about and about theater and about playing a role and stuff. So it was it was pretty good. It was pretty good. But well, no, we did we didn't talk about the ornament. No, I was gonna get to that because I I know it's the the well I'll let you talk about it because that was another question I okay. didn't have ready. The ornament. Okay, so there's a woman named Lisa Hurwitz. Okay, and she's a young lady, and it took her seven years to do this movie. And for some reason, she got an interest in, in the ornaments. And my first job as a, uh, when I got my working papers, was as a busboy in the ornaments because uh, my grandmother was a nickel. Girl. You gave her a dollar, she gave you 20 nickels magically threw them at you so you could use the ornaments. So I wrote about it and put it on Facebook. And uh, she happened to come across it and she uh, hired me. And I'm proud to be part of this because I can honestly say I'm in a film with one of my idols. Mel <laughs> Brooks. All my idols. Mel Brooks. Yep. And because uh, I was totally in love with his wife when I saw the uh, graduate. I never had a woman younger than me after I saw the graduate. I always went out with older ladies. <laughs> uh, and she was from the Bronx. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Bancroft. Her oh, yeah. Maria. Italiano. Everybody thought she was Jewish, but she was Italian from the Bronx. And um, and uh, RBK, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is in it. RBG, uh -huh. she's in it. And uh, uh, General Colin Powell's in it. And Rob Reiner's in it. And uh, the guy that's married used to be married to Barbara Streisand is in it. Oh, is and, it the, Joel Silver or no, no James well, James Brown or Joel Silver? No, uh, uh, he was in MASH. Oh, I was thinking because uh, he was in the movie MASH. That, that the TV. Oh, movie. Elliot Gould. There you go. Yeah, he's in it. And it's just so cool that I'm in it and I was able to have a picture with my grandmother in it. And, and uh, I got it mentioned in the New York Times too because I was the only worker. But uh, Mel Brooks is hilarious and he was so fascinated that this girl who had nothing. I don't even know if she was born when the last one was closed. The last one was closed like in 92 on um, 42nd Street. But it originated in Philly. And at one time, the ornament was uh, as popular as the Empire State Building, as the uh, and Empire State Building and Statue of Liberty, because this is a place where immigrants can go, where Black people could go, where anybody could go. And if the rule was if there was an empty seat, you could sit in it. And then it was an amazing place. So. Uh, the mayor, the first black mayor of uh, Philadelphia is in it. He tells how his family used to take him there. And Colin Powell said that growing up in the Bronx, his family used to take him there. So it's a wonderful, wonderful. Um, it was on it was, last Saturday, it was on 86th Street. It was playing there. A uh, documentary uh, that will be, it's going to be on TCM. And it's not something that's going to be able to download. But right now, it's making the uh, run, you know, all the uh, the uh, uh, film festivals and stuff. And I'm well, really proud to be in that film. Yeah, really. well, you're surrounded by greatness. I know. You know like, Rob Reiner, Colin Powell, Mel Brooks. I you got this. You got to do this. <laughs> Would you see it? I, I live in Connecticut. Oh, no, let me just tell you this one thing. Oh, go oh, ahead. Connecticut. Connecticut. Okay, because that's where I met Andrea uh, at Hampshire College. She used to live in Rowayton. She used okay. to live 
Hawaii. That's where I used to go, and it was wonderful. But um, yeah, so Mel Brooks, he couldn't believe that this young girl took her seven years to make this film. So he even wrote a song about the film. Yeah. But then there's one part that he talks about that his favorite was uh, the ham and cheese sandwich, which was, you know, you're not supposed to have ham and cheese sandwich. It's just so funny when he says that. And he talks about how cheap, no, frugal, that he means cheap, that Rob <laughs> Ryder was. But um, he says, <laughs> and the lemon meringue pie was made by God. <laughs> Uh, the guy is hilarious i wanted to see it and it was playing in connecticut for two weekends that was it there was a theater called the avon theater in stanford it's probably an hour away from here i wanted to go see it. i saw the trailer it said it looks hilarious and it ended so i'm waiting for it to come out into streaming services so i could watch it because it's that's a movie that definitely interested and i was i had that ready for the end because i know that you are a part of it I know. I'm in it twice too. <laughs> I'm in it twice. I'm in it when I when I talk about my grandmother. I talk about working there. I talk about being my first job. And uh, when my part comes out, I'm talking about uh, how different it was and how people, how my experience of seeing homeless people for the first time, really, you know, downtown, and how they would take a a cup of water and just put ketchup in it, just stretch it out and you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, sometimes uh, when I first started, I would try to chase them out, but then I realized just leave them be. And it, it was, so I talk about that. And then I talk about my grandmother being a nickel thrower. And Mel Brooks talks about the, the magical nickel thrower and how him and his brothers were just fascinated how she had a big barrel of nickels and that someday he wished he could have a big barrel of nickels and how they would just grab the 20 nickels without counting because she did she could grab 20 nickels it was just she did it for so long beautiful art deco uh restaurant and um the the machinery and uh, it was just a just a, a magical place and the, I'm, I'm proud to be in this one and i got it because of facebook I love it. This, yeah, Facebook has been very good to you. When, when you're not in the Facebook jail, Facebook has been good to you. They don't put me in jail. They're very good to me. <laughs> There's actually one like document. If I, if I don't post in Facebook, they call my daughter up and wonder if, if I'm okay. <laughs> so like, I've run out of ideas and I just don't, I won't do anything for a while and people panic, think, you know, something happens. So they, they start calling them. That's why I try to something every day oh yeah well in the orphan nation i see something at least two three times a day i see new pictures i love it and they're always hilarious or but there's something that i definitely want you to check out i'm not sure if and i found this on the walking tour with john joseph it's called the rubble kings i don't know if you ever saw it yeah i've seen that yeah yeah. yeah it's a yeah those very... are the gangs i'm talking about those are the gangs that i was used to so oh, okay when I saw the warriors <laughs> i was like get the fuck out of here <laughs> exactly those are the exact same people i know <laughs> in fact one of them uh is on showtime now la madrina uh she was the uh, first lady of the savage skulls and uh her life is um is now on showtime you know okay the documentary on Showtime, La Madrina, and she's on my, uh, she's in Orphan Nation. And uh, I, I finally got to meet her through a mutual friend, because that's why you have to be nice to people, because you'd be surprised how it just turns around, 
and so and so knows this person. Oh yeah, knows this person, and yeah. Life, life is all about the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Everybody's connected somehow. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. All right, puppy. It was a good interview. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Anytime you want to do a part two, what's the name of your show? It's called The Claws Corner. C-L-A-W. Because I have, as you know, I, I know the claws thing. I read about you and your claws thing. Yeah, yeah. The, the I, mean, look at me, I gotta tell you, I want to say it right here because I've gotten this so many times. I got the nickname The Claw when I was in high school in 86. And so I got into a fight and somebody was, oh, it's The Claw, it's The Claw. So everybody thought it was funny. Then in 1994, somewhere around there, Jim Carrey comes out with a movie. And I think it was Liar, Liar, one of those movies. And he's making fun of The Claw. So everybody was joking, ah, Rich, he, Jim Carrey's ripping you off. And now... Everybody's like, oh, you're just making, you know, imitating Jim Carrey. It's like, no, no, no. I, I was the original claw. I'm the OG. So I, but I, it stuck with comedy. So I stuck it with comedy. And then with, when I came out with the podcast, I'm like, how can I correlate and keep it in the same theme? And that's where I came up with the claws corner. The claws corner. Okay. So I just wrote it down. Yep. Just wrote it down. The All right. So yeah. You can... See, that's the famous autograph. See the arrow? Oh, yeah. I love they it. I love that guy. When that guy came in and asked me to do 40 uh, uh, vests, he's like, man, your signature pops out, man. I said, I've been working on that since seventh grade, sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> you always knew you were going to be a contender, even back yeah. then. Because <laughs> when I got there, when um, I, I was doing it with Didi uh, from the Lizzie's. It was just me and Didi. And Didi and I are a funny pair because she's a vegan and I'm just a pig. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I know I, I get on her nerves, but she loves me. And the first time we met, uh, it was really strange. It was like Beauty and the Beast. And um, she goes, uh, trying to make friends, she goes, oh, Patchy, would you like a rice, what do you call it? Rice cake with peanut butter? And I said, get the fuck out of here. And that broke the ice and everybody started laughing. Now we're, now we're good friends, but uh yeah. Like, what? A rice cake and peanut butter? No. <laughs> Corned beef on rye with mustard. Yeah. <laughs> Get me a sheep's head. <laughs> we need beef. <laughs> uh, no <bandita. laughs> uh, well, Patchy, we definitely have to have a part two because I can go on for another yeah, three yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. I got, I got, uh, like my daughter says, I'm the Puerto Rican. Uh, the Forrest Gump, of, yeah, the Puerto Rican Forrest Gump. Yeah, and we haven't even got to uh, Belafonte. No. <laughs> do you do you want to end with Belafonte? No, no, I'll save it for the next. All show. right, that's and we we're gonna leave a teaser here in the closet corner. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, All right. hold on. I dropped my my ears. <laughs> okay, what'd you say? No, I was gonna say we're leaving. We're ending this show on a teaser. Coming up soon on Patchy Ramos Part Two. Harry Belafonte story, uh, story yeah. you will not want to miss here. On what the a great man. Because it's related to how my daughter got into opera. Yeah, which I didn't even get a chance to talk about because I know one of the funniest things I heard about your daughter is when she used to be in the clubs or sing and then they thought it was good luck to give her money because they were gambling. So she would make all this money as a child. That was from the bars. Okay, bars, so yeah, yeah. that was the Blarney Stone that was downstairs. I worked on 30th and 8th Avenue and Blarney Stone was right across the street on 30th, between 30th and uh, and 31st. Yeah. yeah, it was going uptown. And um, so 
I would, you know, I would have child, pro you know, I, I would take jazz and bring it to the bar after rehearsals or before rehearsals. And uh, she would sing in Italian to the mob guys in the back, or she would sing uh, any operas in German or different languages. And the gamblers would just love her and throw her money. And I would tell her, don't tell mommy. And I would take her to Jack's 99 cent store and she would just buy up the store. And uh, we had a good thing going there. And she learned some lessons there. Cause I remember one time uh, the bartenders had thick, thick, thick Irish brogues. Uh, you know, I think that was a prerequisite to work at the Blarney Stone. And uh, the only time I didn't go there was St. Paddy's Day because they raised the prices on St. Paddy's Day. Yeah. But, uh, and then the amateur drinkers were there and there was, it was a mess. But uh, <laughs> she, she didn't pay attention. And uh, Pat, of course, his name was Pat, the bartender, took her little pocketbook. And she was so upset, you know, so... Uh, he taught, then he gave it to her. He said, "You never leave your pocketbook. Always watch your things." So she never forgot that. She never forgot that. But yeah, life those, lesson number one. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so she had a different upbringing. She grew up with transsexuals, transvestites. Uh, you know, I didn't hide things from my daughter. She she learned a lot of things and it became helpful in life. She just yeah. changed her life from a music teacher. She had her own music school and. Um, uh, the virus came, so she had to change her life. And now she's a madame. They call her Madame Court Reporter. She's a court reporter now. Wow. Took all the tests, went to school, went back to school, got it all done. I'm pretty proud yeah. of her. That girl is too much. And now she's taking care of me. You see? I love it. Yeah. Now she's taking care of me. So that's how it goes. Yep. Nope. Circle of life. I love it. Circle of life. You got it. And I got my grandchildren here, so I'm blessed. All right. Patchy. Been great having you on the show. I told you, me, you, John Joseph, we're doing it. We're gonna hang yeah. out sometime. I'd like to do a scene with you sometime. That would be fun. That would be great. I would love to. We're we're definitely gonna keep in touch. I'll I think we're gonna be friends for life. I think so. Definitely. Because you you're an orphan for life now. I love it. I'm sorry, <laughs> but you are. <laughs> All right, brother. Fuck Take the Warriors. Care. Fuck the Turnbull ACs. Fuck the Gramercy. Nah. No, we, we love our we love our warriors. We, we love do, our we warriors. We, we love, love we, we do love the warriors. So, but orphans forever. There you go. There you All go. Right, well, that wraps up the latest episode of the Claws Corner. A huge thanks goes out to actor producer Apache Ramos for being a guest on the show. I would also like to thank John Bristol for always doing a superb job editing the show and making it available each and every week. And of course, I need to thank you, the viewer, for always tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone. We're going to rain on you, warriors! <laughs> Good night. Diaphragm again? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah.
caught one. They're supposed to be weird. Oh, yeah, no. If you say so. I've always wanted to be in a movie. Waiting around for autumn. Waiting around for autumn. I was watching the TV. <gasps> I was